said i don't mm. need this anymore <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck what are you talking about <laughs> what do you mean you don't need it <laughs> i mean i don't know now what i meant but it meant a lot to me at the time <laughs> it's pretty good yeah. all right let's be let's be professionals here okay uh yeah uh anybody that's just tuning in now uh you guys um you guys missed a lot of stuff that cannot ever be public right we were just talking for an hour and a half um let me just disable some of this uh flux i got going on but today we're gonna we're gonna do something nice right we're gonna be talking about this book lost in the city it's a book of short stories by Edward P. Jones, I believe it was published in maybe like 92, 93, early 90s at any rate. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, excellent stories, great stories, even, you know, the worst stories here are still, I'd say, pretty good. Uh, or just, just yeah, nothing, in, nothing bad. Yeah, nothing bad. Question. Yeah, nothing bad. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting because, like, I, I've never done these kinds of shows with, uh, short uh, stories before and one of the challenging things is unlike for example like a novel or whatever you know there's a ton of characters and just like structural experiments and all this different stuff that you kind of have to keep fresh in your mind um so each one of us is perhaps a little bit more of an expert on some stories than uh the other guy so we're gonna maybe do a kind of like you know t do the rounds here as it were Mm -hmm. um i mean do, do you have like anything you want to say about the, the text like in terms of introductions uh only that it's weird because i've read it twice now yeah in preparation for this and the first time that i read it i must admit it was kind of on the you know i always say in terms of texts or works that i can recognize are very good to great but do not move me in any way. Mm -hmm. I've always said like last year in Marion Bad or, you know, a couple of other things. And I kind of put this in the same category the first time that I read it. Mm -hmm. But the second time that I read it uh, in the last couple of days here, uh, it's very moving. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, I don't know if it's like you have to be in the right headspace or you have to maybe maybe the first time it's just because it's a collection of short stories and it's like constantly shifting like the characters and the tone and the structure and things like that. Uh, you, like you have to be familiar with that in order for it to be like an emotionally affecting thing. But mm -hmm. the second time I read it, deeply affecting work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I read it for the first time uh, in my like early uh, mid twenties. Um, so I, I definitely didn't appreciate it either. Like, you know, reading a second time and out now a third time, uh, you know, there, I, I see like some of my, I, I, it's still the same edition that I had from back then. And I, I see like the little notes that I must have taken when I was like, you know, 22 or whatever. Uh, and I, I'm thinking like, well, why didn't I make a note about this or about that, about that? I think part of it is, you know, many of these stories are very, very understated, right? He doesn't hit you over the head with either moralizing 
there, there, there's like tons of like poeticisms in the text, but there's also a lot more kind of implied poeticism through, uh, through understatement. Right. So, um, that's, that's one of the techniques that he does, uh, very well in this book. So, you know, I I can imagine definitely that if you're uh, younger, first getting to literature, even if you understand literature, as I think that I understood it then, um, definitely like as you get older, understatement becomes one of those things that you appreciate more. Yeah. It's also just, it's a, it's adult literature, not Mm -hmm. in the sense of like sexuality, but in the sense that like to appreciate the particular insights and perspectives that he's bringing, you kind of have to be a grown up. You know, you have to have been on your own. You have to have uh, been self-supporting. You have to have experienced enough of the world that you sort of see the 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 types of people that he is depicting and engaging with, and and have formed your own opinion on them in order to sort of appreciate the angle that he is approaching it from. You know, I mean, and there's not enough of that anymore. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of you know, you go on Twitter, you go on a lot of these like places where people engage with these kind of things. And, you know, there's this really bad tendency in modern criticism to equate depiction with endorsements. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a lot of bad people in this book or people that are extremely flawed. And like you have to be able to separate a person's actions from the context that they take place in in order Mm -hmm. to really properly appreciate something like this, or it's just going to be like an academic exercise or like, uh, you know, just, it's just another book of short stories that was on the shelf at the library, Mm -hmm. you know, and really this particular book, as far as I am aware, it didn't really gain a lot of traction until after he published the book that he got the, was it the Pulitzer or the National Book Award that he got for? Uh, I think I think it was a Pulitzer. It was a Pulitzer for the Known World. I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah, like this kind of flew under the radar until he published that kind of, you know, uh, cultural uh, behemoth of a work, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, it's it's something that if you're not willing to sort of sit down and quiet and engage with it, it could easily just seem like, oh, a bunch of like laconic, you know, kind of boring stories about boring people, you yeah. know? And, and and especially as a 20 year old, you know, or a, even a 25 year old, it's like, you don't, you just don't quite have the perspective to appreciate what he is doing uh, with this that you do when you reach like your thirties and older, you know, like yeah. 30 is really like an, an inflection point in your in your cognition and your psyche and your understanding of the world that mm-hmm. you can't you you can't transmit it backwards you can't correct people that are younger you can't imbue them with like your insight and your wisdom or whatever it's just like it's 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 like it's a constellation of neurons that just they find the connection at a certain point um you know you uh you definitely want especially as a younger person the racial kind of like politics in this book, small p politics, to be more overt in some way, right? Uh, you 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 want to sort of read into things uh, that that perhaps aren't there, right? So many like so many of the stories, like we're going to talk about like one of the best stories here, the store, 
the race, race is a part of it, yes, but it, it, it it's it's much more kind of subliminal, right? Uh, yeah. You can imagine if this was like you know if these were white characters, you can imagine a situation where certain things might have played out differently, right? But uh, for uh, for the most part, you know, race is much more subtle here. And one thing that disappointed me, you, you mentioned that um, it, it's not really it hasn't really gotten as much attention as as his other books. Uh, I, I was trying to look up uh, Edward P. Jones' uh, lectures, like he has like interviews, lectures or whatever. He really barely talks about this collection at all, right? There, there's nothing that I was able to really find that that was any kind of like substantive examination of these stories. And in fact, one of the reasons I wanted to do this artifact is because this will be the most substantive discussion of these stories that you could probably find anywhere at this point. Um, and they're very rarely written anything to be fair. I mean, yeah, he's one of those authors where you're like, how is it that in 30 years of being, uh, you know, a famous, famous published author, you have three books. Yeah. You know, you could have more, you won the fucking Pulitzer. Yeah. You know, I mean, I get that some people are perfectionists. I mean, most famously, uh, Ralph Ellison, the author of Visible Man, which is very good book that you probably could do another artifact about if you really wanted to. Uh, he basically uh, dilly dallied around for the rest of his career, working on a very uh, like a long novel called Juneteenth. That wasn't it. Was it, was it, was it Junebug? No, Juneteenth is the name of the of, of the book. It's not June. Book. It's not Junebug. No. Okay. Yeah, but he never finished it. You know, he had like 2,000 pages of material that was compiled uh, by a close collaborator after his death into like a 400-ish page. Uh, I, I don't know what you call it when it's like, it's not exactly a novel. It's like a, an attempted distillation of an intended novel, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they've also released like the unredacted, uh, like, you know, 2,000-page uh, opus that he wrote. But... You know, so like, and and Robert Frost, uh, you know, to, to go for a white author is kind of uh, similar where you're like, you really couldn't have written more than you wrote for as famous and as uh, celebrated as you were, mm-hmm. you know, like you didn't have more ideas, uh, you know, that you could uh, play with and uh, engage with. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of his books is just a, not a sequel, exactly, like a spiritual and kind of sequel to this book. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote a, ser- a, a a book of short stories called Aunt Hagar's Children, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's... That it. is essentially, like, every story in that book is either a sequel or, like, a spiritual sequel to the stories in this book in chronological order. And, and that makes you wonder why he doesn't talk about this book more and why it hasn't been more celebrated, but it also makes you wonder, like, you know, this man is a professor of creative writing. He's giving lectures. I, I don't know if he's done a TED Talk, but whatever is the, the 90s equivalent of a TED Talk, mm. you know, like he, he like he is someone that is out there and engaging with people, but he himself apparently had very little to contribute to the culture relative to how great this book is. I haven't read The Known World, so I don't know if that's also a great book, but you know, he he really has contributed relatively little to what his station could have enabled him to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, it's always interesting to have these kinds of like, what if scenarios and also just, I mean, psychologically wondering like what it is that compels certain people to create versus not. I mean, I, I could just imagine myself, like if I'm in a situation where, um, I'm a professor somewhere and the expectation is that I simply, you know, I, I teach and I write books, teach and I write books because there's always a publisher for your stuff. Right. And there's always a national audience that would always be extremely tempting, right? To, you know, ha have something out like every year, right? If you could essentially mm -hmm. have this kind of a, a contract, but, you know, there's also other personalities, right? Like Kazuo Shiguro, who wrote, you know, a couple of uh, uh, excellent to great books early in his career, and then just kind of like really stretched it out, right? He would spend many, many years uh, in, in in between books, Um and, you know, like, who knows exactly uh, what's behind that. But uh, anyway, like to, to get all that out of the way, um, you said uh, the, the opening story, the girl who raised pigeons is your favorite story uh, in, in the yes. collection. Uh, and it's definitely one of my uh, favorite stories. I think the, the, the following one, the first day is my favorite. But uh, the girl who raised pigeons, it's, it's, it's a great story. Um, it, it's, it's about a, uh, uh, the, the character Robert and, uh, his daughter, Betsy, Robert, uh, is a young father. I believe uh, he's 19 when, uh, Betsy is born. Uh, the wife, uh, has, uh, cancer. Uh, so she dies, uh, I think, uh, soon after the childbirth and he's like, you know, he, he has to deal, uh, with, with uh, being a young father He's thinking like, you know, what am I supposed to do now? I can't handle this kind of responsibility. Um, but he, you know, he sticks it out. Betsy Ann uh, uh, meets like a family friend, this, this barber. And he, he's been raising pigeons and seems his whole life. She becomes fascinated by these pigeons and uh, he, he gives her some pigeons as a gift. And uh, the, the, the story takes on this like very interesting quality where, um, you know, it's, it's titled the girl who raised pigeons, but, uh, even if she's like a, a central kind of fixation in the story, it's not just about her, right? Definitely. There's a lot about her and her psychology and, uh, what she's doing, what she's up to, but a lot of it is also about Robert, the father, right? A lot of it is about mm -hmm. his own kind of desire to protect her from, for example, pigeon deaths. It's uh, it, 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 you kind of see see this kind of like you know youthfulness coming out again and again where you know he 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 seems to not really uh, 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 I don't want to say that he doesn't understand boundaries because I mean we don't really have much evidence of that but he does he he doesn't seem to truly know being an experience as a father what the boundaries ought to be in terms of what to protect his daughter from, what she's allowed to see, what she's not allowed to see. Uh, he, he, he seems to uh, not really truly understand uh, his daughter like psychologically. And I mean, that, that's true of like a lot of adults, right? Adult, adults all seem to like not really get what it's like to be a kid, right? Because after you grow up, you kind of put those things behind you. Um, so uh, a, a lot of it ends up sort of being about him in this kind of oblique way. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I find that to be a very kind of uh, interesting uh, technique, like e even, even in the very beginning, um, the way that it opens. So uh, the opening paragraph is like this. Her father would say years later that she had dreamed that part of it. 
that she had ne- that she had never gone out through the kitchen window at two or three in the morning to visit the birds. By that time in his life, he would have so many notions about himself set in concrete. And having always believed that he slept lightly, he would not want to think that a girl of nine or 10 could walk by him at such an hour in the night without his waking and asking of the dark, who is it? What's the matter? Right. So even like at the beginning, it's it's like this interesting kind of thing happening where like it's it, it seems to sort of be about him. It seems to be, be about his defense mechanisms, about his understanding of the world and how having a daughter, having these pigeons and having these other elements that are introduced into his life. All that stuff tends to, on the one hand, chip away these understandings and force new understandings upon him. And then on the other hand, you have that line about how so many notions about himself set in concrete, right? He's like resisting a lot of this encroachment, right? He wants to think of himself in the way that he prefers to think of himself, right? And you see this from the very beginning. And, you know, it's a bit of a daring opening, right? And uh, on first glance, it doesn't seem to be the case. But if you reread this after finishing the story, uh, this interplay between the two characters, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, no, And the way that he builds the prose is very subtle, but it's very poetic and effective. Like even little inversions, like he would ask of the dark, you know, who is it? What's the matter? Mm -hmm. You know, instead of, you know, like a lesser author would be like, oh, he would call out, who is it? What's the matter or something? But to ask of the dark, you Mm -hmm. know, in the sense that like, you're getting the you're you're getting something about him as a character when you say that he asks of the dark you know like that he's almost acting instinctually and yet from a uh you know from a position of 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 ignorance and not exactly knowing how to act Mm -hmm. you know and that's that's really the what separates like a good writer from a great writer you know is that they not just that they can find the inversions but that they can find the inversions that that capture something about the thing that they are writing about, you know, mm-hmm. that 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 tell you something deeper about the the characters that they are trying to capture. And it's it's a great opening paragraph, I have mm-hmm. to say. I mean, and I mean, we, we, we yeah, we could even like uh, the because it's uh, it's kind of like this. Um, it's just two paragraphs that open it before we get this kind of you know ellipsis in the passage of time. Like even that is uh, the 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 second part. So after he asks, "Who is it? What's the matter?" But the night visits were not dreams, and they remained forever as vivid to her as the memory of the way the pigeons' iridescent necklaces flirted with light. Right. I mean, yeah, just like great description. The visits yeah. would begin not with any compulsion in her sleeping mind to visit, but with the simple need to pee or to get a drink of water. In the dark, she went barefoot out of her room, past her father in the front room conversing in his sleep, across the kitchen and through the kitchen window, out over the roof a few steps to the coop. It could be winter, it could be summer, but the most she ever got was something she called pigeon silence. Sometimes she had the urge to unlatch the door and go into the coop, or at the very least, to try to reach through the wire and the wooden slats to stroke a wing or a breast, to share whatever the silence seemed to conceal. But she always kept her hands to herself, and after a few minutes, as if relieved, she would go back to her bed and visit the the birds again in sleep. Mm -hmm. 
right? So like we start with this kind of sleep, like we end with this kind of sleep. We have these like, you know, almost like phantoms, like visiting and departing, right? And, and she kind of becomes a part of this process. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a it's a great uh, kind of opening. And, you know, you, you, you get uh, so many directions that this could potentially go. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he plays a he plays a lot with time in this book, you know, where he will give an aside about a character years later. Yeah. That te- that tells you something about their actions and their perspective in the current time, but you kind of have to build that connective tissue yourself in your own mind. You mm-hmm. know, you have to take what they say about the character. Uh, you know, they'll be like, oh you know, five years from now, this person will blah, blah, blah. And you then have to sort of read that back into uh, what they are doing or saying in the current moment and and figure out how that tells you, like how, how that then inflects your interpretation of what the character is doing in the moment that the story is describing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very, I mean, it's just a subtle book. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the last book that you and I talked about, Cat's Cradle, it's a great book, but it's not exactly subtle. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it's very bombastic in the way that it treats the subjects that it talks about. Mm-hmm. And it's great because Kurt Vonnegut was a great author. You know, th- this is someone writing their first uh, published book of short stories. You know, I don't know if it was something psychological where he felt like he had to be a little more understated or if it's just like pure artistic instinct that was driving this person but it's a lot you know it's a book that requires a certain amount of engagement from the reader you know it requires you to sort of figure out uh what are the connections between the things that it is describing and you know certain other things that it describes a little bit more shallowly or obliquely Mm -hmm. you know and that's that's not used enough in writing, you know, or yeah. if it's used, it's used in a in a paradoxically showy way, yeah. you know, like look how great of an author I am that I can I can mm-hmm. seed all these clues throughout the texts or whatever. Like he just he just writes it, and if you catch it, you catch it. If you don't, you don't. It's not specifically necessary to appreciating it, but it is. It certainly enriches it if you engage it on that level. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, the, the thing about subtlety is like you always uh, like subtlety in the hands of the wrong author. Right. You could e- you, you could easily like shift from understatement to like not saying enough, not giving enough clues, leaving too much to the human brain to sort of process and imbue it. I mean, th- that should be like some of that should always be going on, but you need to make sure that you have enough clues Right where uh, uh, you could actually point to like evidence in the text for yeah. you know a, a subtle reading as opposed to one that is simply undeveloped. Right, that is a, a fine line that um, yeah. you know is not often talked uh, enough about. Um, yeah, to, to to speak more concretely on that, you know, a lot of um, classic uh, Sherlock Holmes stories they were built on you know, concrete things that were in the text that if you were reading it and you were trying to get in the headspace of the main character, you could figure out the story or the underlying crime in the same way that Sherlock, the main character, does Mm -hmm. if you were really paying attention and thinking about it. Whereas a lot of 
more contemporary Sherlock Holmes adaptations, they are very clever or they're very obtuse in the way that they depict the crime that is happening to where only some kind of super genius like Sherlock Holmes could have figured it out instead of seeding the clues throughout the text in a way that the audience can, you know, if you're just reading it, you want to be surprised. You know, mm-hmm. you want to sort of have that aha moment where he describes everything that happened in the end. But if you really read closely, you could come to the same conclusions that he did, you know, and that's that's something a lot of authors really don't get, you know, when they're trying to uh, create something that is subtle or that requires some kind of audience participation. It's like they don't include enough to where it's really just like, stochastic if you are somehow occupying the same headspace as the author was when they were writing the book maybe you will happen upon the same interpretation of text that they're writing that Mm. they were you know that they had in their head when they were writing it but that's not a credit to the author it's just like oh randomly someone was thinking the same way about the same kind of material as the person that was writing it and that's that's a really difficult line to ride as an author Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, that, that I mean, that is probably the hardest aspect of writing to try to explain to young writers when they in, when, when you're trying to say, like, you want to give the reader enough to build a bridge to what you were thinking and feeling and experiencing when you were writing it. But you don't want to be overly obvious about it. You know, mm-hmm. they're either going to be too obvious or they're going to be too obtuse. And he in most of this book, he perfectly straddles the line. Yeah. where he gives you just enough to, to sort of figure out what is going on and what is the way that you should be thinking about this. Mm-hmm. But he's not uh, like over, like ham-fisted or overly obvious in the way that he engages with it. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, like, you know, going back and forth in time, like uh, the sequence in this story is we we sort of, we start with the pigeon uh, coop, right? The, the pigeons are right in, in her possession then we get to like, you know, moments uh, before that where Robert did not want to have her uh, uh, get these pigeons. Um, and so this is how like this kind of like subtle conflict between himself and the daughter is presented. Uh, this is on page four. For years after he relented, Robert Morgan would rise every morning before his daughter, go out onto the roof and peer into the coop he had constructed for her, looking for dead pigeons. At such a time in the morning, there would be only fragments of first light, falling in long, hopeful slivers over the birds in their house. Sometimes he would stare absently into the coop for a long time, because being half asleep, his mind would forget why he was there. The murmuring pigeons, as he did with most of the world, would stare back, with looks more of curiosity than a fear or anticipation or welcome. He thought that by getting there in the morning before his daughter, he could spare her the sight and pain of any dead birds. His plan had always been to put any dead birds he found into a burlap sack, take them down to his taxi cab, and dispose of them on his way to work. He never intended to tell her about such birds, and it never occurred to him that she would know every pigeon in the coop and would wonder, perhaps even worry, about a missing bird. 
So you, you get a few things here, like in the most kind of superficial sense, just like in, you know, uh, in, in the Woody Allen movie, Radio Days, you have this like sort of unexpected uh, uh, visit in, in a taxi cab where like the, 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 the kid realizes finally what his dad does for a living. I don't think his uh, work is really mentioned until you, you get to this point, right? So you get this just tiny detail about um you know what he does for a living then you have the pigeons themselves that are you know uh they would just stare back with looks more of curiosity than of fear or anticipation and that kind of actually parallels what his daughter is like right she's curious about the world she's not very fearful right she's not very you know she, she's not trying to uh, uh, avoid these kinds of situations that Robert is trying to prevent her from seeing. In fact, uh, one of the most surprising twists in the story is a few pages down the line, you get to see Betsy Ann for the first time, like not around her father, not around adults where she's like very well behaved, but specifically around like some kid. And she's like kind of bullying. She's like kind of loud and obnoxious. And you know right away that, hey, she's a lot more confident. She's a lot more aware of the world than her father gives her credit for. And it's not done in this kind of like ham-fisted way where like, but actually, you know, she felt this way or that way. All you get is just her interactions with like this kid. And you get to see the contrast uh, with her father or her interactions with the barber and others, right? Um, so, you know, just, just a lot happens in any of these paragraphs where just so much is revealed in so little space. And you can miss it easily if you're, you know, reading, for example, only once uh, or you're just not paying attention. Yeah. Well, it also, it gives you a really clean and direct insight into the mental state of a lot of these people, you yeah. know, like he, his wife died of brain cancer, you know, when he was 19, mm -hmm. like that's gonna, you know, he's very young when all this, uh, when his life started, basically, you know, the, the path that he was locked into for basically the rest of his life was set on him from a very early age. So of course he's going to have this kind of perspective. Of course he's going to try to uh, spare his daughter the horrors of the world and also run her life in a way where she is not going to die young mm -hmm. the way that his wife did. Yeah, you exactly. know, I mean, you can't control cancer, but you control everything else in a person's life. Mm -hmm. And yet he is completely oblivious like, like the fact that he engages with the world on this level makes him co completely oblivious to who his daughter is as a person because it, the story also makes clear at a later point that she is fully aware that he is getting up early to look at the pigeons every day Yeah, because she wakes up randomly in the middle of the night, just yeah. like he does. You know, I mean, that's a subtle uh, uh, parallel between the two of them where you can see that they are more similar to each other than they perhaps would like to admit that they kind of wake up randomly in the middle of the night uh, mm -hmm. and, and just kind of want to wander the world. But she says to a person at a later point, oh yeah, he just gets up and looks at the pigeons in the early morning sometimes. I don't really know why he does that, mm -hmm. but I just see him out, out of the window with his flashlight looking at the pigeons, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? So she's not uh, like whatever his attempts to shelter her, she is not oblivious to that. And in fact, the the sort of uh, rebe slightly rebellious attitude that she uh, subtly has to it is probably directly a product of the fact that she is so aware of the fact 
that he is trying to coddle her and shelter her and keep her uh, apart from the horrors of the world. And it's, mm-hmm. man, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and speaking on that, I mean, this touches on some other themes and developments in the story. So like, yeah, uh, you know, his, his uh, wife early on uh, dies of uh, uh, brain cancer, right? And he can't control that, but now maybe he's going to try to control uh, his environment. And you start seeing these like, you know, so lost in the city, right? The city that we're talking about uh, in the novel is uh, Washington, DC, right? All this uh, uh, takes place in DC. Uh, and early on when the daughter's born, uh, I forget who he's having this conversation with, but, but she tells him, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. The city people are good people. They're going to help you. Right. And, and by that, uh, what is meant is, uh, the city government, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, you know, there are people, uh, out there that could, you know, whether it's like some sort of, you know, food stamp program, or maybe they're going to offer some, uh, support in some other way to like, you know, young parents or whatever. Uh, and, you know, but, but you get the sense throughout the story that this is a, a little bit double-edged, right? Just like in uh, Bruce Ario's uh, novel City Boy, you know, the, the city has like different functions. It's, it's something mm-hmm. that could, you know, uh, sort of contain you and help you, give you solace of some sort. Um, but it could also, you know, stifle you, could also hurt you, right? You mm-hmm. have to be careful around it. And, you know, ju- and also in this story, right, you have th- these things that you can't control. Then you have maybe some people that wish to help you. But then later on, uh, this thing keeps coming up where, like, there's these rumors of like a railroad, right, uh, uh, coming to uh, various neighborhoods and the neighborhood that they're living in. And that uh, their apartment might be sold or demolished or whatever. And the kids like bully one another like, oh, I hear the railroad is coming for your neighborhood. It's going to destroy your house, but my house is fine. Um, So there's definitely this sense throughout the book, uh, especially like with different stories here where people have like more desperate situations in in some tales. Um, You know, the city is also kind of threatening in that way. Right. And I was just going to ask, yeah. like, like, what do you what do you think of that? Like as a as a metaphor um, in in the text, like this, this kind of like, you know, railroad that's kind of coming out of nowhere. Like we don't know who is responsible. Like we don't know exactly what it is, but we know that no one is going to protect you from that. No city person is going to tell you your house is fine. We're going to you know, we're going to save you. There is this kind of overwhelming force that will be there. Right. And, you know, and in some senses, like we mentioned uh, early on that uh, this is a book that is like uh, uh, oftentimes, if not mostly about uh, black or otherwise non-white characters. Um, And yeah, this like race is not really explicitly mentioned in this story, but this is one of the proxies for race that you could talk about in this story, right? This kind of like out of control thing that's going to come and gobble up your apartment, right? If you're not careful or just if you're unlucky, that itself is a kind of proxy for race. Like you could sort of touch upon the logic and the realities of race without necessarily making it the thing in the story, right? It's still kind mm-hmm. of implied. I'm not sure yeah, if you have any that- comments on that or whatever. No, that that's it's not a novel with like or sorry, it's not a, a short story collection with a super strong, like thematic unity between all of the different works. You know, I mean, the, the, it, it's more like there are subtle through lines that are interwoven throughout it. And one of them 
is an intense skepticism toward bureaucracy, you know, toward things that are larger than the than the neighborhood or the family or the kind of intense interpersonal connections that that people feel toward one another. You know, whether it's in a later story where the old woman is intensely paranoid that her social security is going to get taken mm -hmm. away if she doesn't do and say the right things. Mm -hmm. Or uh, in this one where the omnipresent threat of the railroad is kind of constantly weighing on this child's imagination and her ability to really connect with her environment and surroundings and the adults too, you know, um, and, 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 uh, or even in the next story, uh, the first day, the, 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 the bureaucracy involved with schooling, you know, with this woman who goes to a particular church and she sort of idolizes and, uh, dreams about the, the glories that this, school that is across the street from her church where she derives most of her uh her her meaning and her connection to her own life uh and yet because she doesn't live in the right place her child can't go there you know mm -hmm. even though this is something that is probably more connected to her on an on a on a personal or a, or even a spiritual level mm -hmm. she is denied it you know uh, the, the, there is a there is a or, or in, um, I think it was, uh, what, what is the story called? The Sunday after Mother's Day? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, this, this character that uh, sort of takes a child under her wing that she identifies as kind of being similar to herself and who ends up in a very similar situation to herself with her uh, mother being killed by her father. And yet the... The, the uh, obscure and opaque bureaucracy of modern life, whether it's the actual bureaucracy of uh, the state or maybe just uh, someone's family coming from the South and taking this person away, you know, like she is robbed from uh, of this kind of connection and this ability to make right by her own uh, flawed past and upbringing. By this thing that is larger than herself, and so that it that is a definite uh, through line in this novel is the way that uh, sort of organic community and interpersonal ties can be impinged on and undermined and even eliminated by these forces that are larger yeah. than yourself. That and, you and, and, and soft like senses. You can't affect yeah. in any way. You can only deal with it. Yeah, and it's often like these like kind of like senseless losses, right? That are you know, presented in a way where they are kind of like, you know, beyond interpretation, or if not beyond interpretation, like he oftentimes doesn't give enough evidence, right, to like, we're going to talk about the night Rhonda Ferguson was killed. They're like, there's no, there's no actual stated reason for why, you know, uh, Rhonda uh, gets murdered by the uh, uh, father of her uh, child. Um, it, it just sort of happens, right? We don't mm -hmm. have a reason why, you know, uh, uh, this, uh, why, why Robert's uh, wife dies of cancer at such an early age. And also, we don't necessarily have uh, a reason for going to the end of the story. Um, at the very end, basically, like the pigeon coop uh, gets invaded, I think, by some rats. And uh, a, a bunch of pigeons just get, uh, just get killed, right? And... Um, uh, the father has to come out and this time truly 
protect her daughter, right? In a way that that does make sense, right? It's as if like he was sort of preparing for this moment, like rehearsing as a father. Mm -hmm. And finally, like, you know, he he wakes up one morning and he sees that, you know, all these pigeons have been killed by by uh, uh, these rats or whatever. He doesn't see the rats, but this is the assumption. Uh, he takes like a, a, a burlap sack and he throws them all in. She tries to come out and see. He says like, no, you cannot watch this. You have to like go to your room or whatever. Um, and th this is the way that the story ends uh, on page 23. She missed them more than ever she thought she would. In school, her mind would wander and she would doodle so many pigeons on the backs of her hands and along her arms that teachers called her nasty, nasty girl. In the bathtub at night, she would cry to have to wash them off. And as she slept, missing them would take shape and lean down over her bed and wake her just enough to get her to understand a whisper that told her all over again how much she missed them. And when she raged in her sleep, Robert would come in and hold her until she returned to peace. He would sit in the chair beside her bed for the rest of the night, for her rages usually came about four in the morning, and with the night so near morning, he saw no use in going back to bed. Um, so uh, there's more after that, but this is kind of like the general idea, right? Like the, the father finally gets kind of like his place, right? Where where he is needed, right? He he is able to comfort her in ways that she doesn't expect that she would need. And finally it happens that that's, you know, this is like a childhood loss that she's experiencing. Uh, there's no actual reason it's simply one of those things that happened and again like one of those things that we could say in its own kind of limited way could be a kind of proxy for race without having to you know make that so uh explicit or without having to focus on race itself yeah well i i also uh in terms of the the race issue one thing that i thought is very subtle but is very clever is you know there's the old stereotype that pigeons are just rats with wings mm -hmm. you know they're yeah. just these uh these pests these things that you kind of wish weren't around mm -hmm. and yet like the the actual rats you know are the things that ultimately are the are what destroy them mm -hmm. and as you read throughout the book you know uh, there's a lot of characters that feel intense resentment and mistrust of uh, you know of of, of white people i mean mm -hmm. in the in, in the story the store uh the person the the main character specifically refers to the jobs that he has working for white people as slaves mm -hmm. you know which is not uncommon parlance but you know the mm -hmm. fact that he chose to adopt it tells you something about him as a person but uh you know the sort of uh the dichotomy between these uh you know very sweet and ultimately kind of harmless things these pigeons and he's actually like vicious pests of these rats i i think is like a you know a sort of subtle commentary on like the vagaries of uh of race and racial uh classification and categorization uh yeah that you know that he it's it's done very well the idea that like ultimately these things are all considered pests but there is a real difference between them and the elision of that difference is uh you know a huge you know, a huge loss in terms of yeah. understanding and appreciation. Yeah. And I, I think artistically, this is kind of i I'm not sure if this is just like, you know, random uh, with me, but 
when I think of like artistic representations of, you know, people that raise pigeons or, you know, in the media or whatever, uh, I, I'm wondering if like, it's like a little bit of a black trope in some way. I mean, um, we have like Mike Tyson, right. Who famously grew up uh, raising pigeons. And one of the ways he wanted to get revenge on the world was, uh, you know, people would sometimes come by harass or sometimes even like kill his pigeons. And, uh, he, you know, that was one of his kind of like, uh, defense mechanisms we have, uh, you know, in this story, right. These are, uh, uh, I, 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 I think based on kind of like their milieu, based on the people they're around, it seems like they are uh, a black family, right? And she's raising uh, pigeons. We have um, uh, that that movie Ghost Dog with Forrest Whitaker, right? Who plays this assassin. And uh, he, he, you know, like raises pigeons on, on a coop. Um, and the only other like representations of that that I think in the white world is like, <laughs> the pigeon lady in Home Alone too. Uh, I, I don't know uh, who else, or, may, or maybe like the, the the pigeon man in uh, in Hey Arnold or something. But he's yeah. he, everybody there is so ethnically ambiguous anyway, so you can't even say that's white. Yeah, well, I, I I do think it's this is an overused term in criticism now, but it is a little bit like black coded. Yeah, I guess you know. But but what I think it is, it's like. You know, if you live in kind of an urban milieu and you see these pigeons around everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have any kind of other avenue of escape from the situation that you find yourself in, like the idea of raising pigeons is sort of like the absolute uh, embrace of uh, of your circumstances. You know, it's it's finding you know personal meaning and and connection with something that any outside observer would look at and say is like a, a pest problem that you have or you know a dirty thing that you have to deal with as a result of your of your poverty and your circumstances that render you unable to escape that poverty mm -hmm. you know yeah. so it's not it's it's class coded and it's race coded but because we live in america those are kind of the same thing you know mm -hmm. yeah um, do you want to move on to uh, the next story or? Yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, honestly, that story, I could, I, there are so many like yeah. subtleties and vicissitudes that I could probably talk about that for the whole podcast, but for the yeah. sake of, for the sake of, uh, the, the story, we should probably move on. Um, well, I, I was planning on reading this whole uh, story the first day. Uh, if you want to read it, you could read it too, but maybe that's too much of a burden. I uh, no, I will read it. Let me. Let's find it here. I I I my I have an ebook version of this, so I just need a sec here. Okay. The first day. On an otherwise unremarkable September morning, long before I learned to be ashamed of my mother, she takes my hand and we set off down New Jersey Avenue to begin my very first day of school. I am wearing a, uh, a, ch a checkered-like blue and green cotton dress, and scattered about these colors are bits of yellow and white and brown. My mother has uncharacteristically spent nearly an hour on my hair that morning, plating and replating so that now my scalp tingles. Whenever I turn my head quickly, my nose fills with the faint smell of Dixie peach hair grease. The smell is somehow a soothing one now, and I will reach for it time and time again before the morning ends. All the plates, each with a blue barrette near the tip and each twi twisted into an uncommon sturdiness will last until I go to bed that night, something that has never happened before. 
My stomach is full of milk and oatmeal sweetened with brown sugar. Like everything else I have on, my pale green slip and underwear are new. The underwear having come three to a plastic package with a little girl on the front who appears to be dancing. Behind my ears, my mother, to stop my whining, has dabbed the stingiest bit of her gardenia perfume, the last present my father gave her before he disappeared into memory. Because I cannot smell it, I have only her word that the perfume is there. I am also wearing yellow socks trimmed with thin lines of black and white around the tops. My shoes are my greatest joy, black patent leather mirrors, and when one is nicked at the toe later that morning in class, my heart will break. I am carrying a pencil a pencil sharpener, and a small 10-cent tablet with a black and white speckled cover. My mother does not believe that a girl in kindergarten needs such things, so I am taking them only because of my insistent whining and because they are presents for my neighbors, Mary Keith and Blondell Harris. Miss Mary and Miss Blondell are watching my two younger sisters until my mother returns. The women are as precious to me as my mother and sisters. Out playing one day, I have overheard an older child speaking to another child, call Miss Mary and Miss Blundell a word that is brand new to me. This is my mother. When I say the word in fun to one of my sisters, my mother slaps me across the mouth and the word is lost for years and years. All the way down New Jersey Avenue, the sidewalks are teeming with children. In my neighborhood, I have many friends, but I see none of them as my mother and I walk. We cross New York Avenue, we cross Pierce Street, and we cross L and K, and still I see no one who knows my name. At I Street, between New Jersey Avenue and Third Street, we enter Seton Elementary School, a time-worn, sad-faced building across the street from my mother's church, Mount Carmel Baptist. Just inside the front door, women out of the advertisements in Ebony are greeting other parents and children. The, women, the woman who greets us has pearls thick as jumbo marbles that come down almost to her navel. And she acts as if she had known me all her life, touching my shoulder, cupping her hand under my chin. She is enveloped in a perfume that I only know is not gardenia. When, in answer to her question, my mother tells her that we live at 1227 New Jersey Avenue, the woman first seems to be picturing in her head where we live. Then she shakes her head and says that we are at the wrong school, that we should be at Walker Jones. My mother shakes her head vigorously. I want her to go here, my mother says. If I'd have wanted her to go someplace else, I'd have took her there. The woman continues to act as if she had known me all my life, but she tells my mother that we live beyond the area that Seton serves. My mother is not convinced, and for several more minutes, she questions the woman about why I cannot attend Seton. For as many Sundays as I can remember, perhaps even Sundays when I was in her womb, my mother had pointed across I Street to Seton as we come and go to Mount Carmel. You gonna go there and learn about the whole world. But one of the guardians of that place is saying no and no again. I am learning this about my mother. The higher up on the scale of respectability a person is, and teachers are rather high up in her eyes, the less she is liable to let them push her around. But finally, I see in her eyes the closing gate, and she takes my hand and we leave the building. On the steps, she stops as people move past us on either side. Mama, can't, I can't go to school? She says nothing at first, then takes my hand again, and we are down the steps quickly and nearing New Jersey Avenue before I can blink. This is my mother. She says, one monkey don't stop, no show. Walker Jones is a larger, newer school, and I immediately like it because of that. But it is not across the street from my mother's church, her rock, one of her connections to God, and I sense her doubts as she absently rubs her thumb over the back of her hand. 
We find our way to the crowded auditorium where gray metal chairs are set up in the middle of the room. Along the wall to the left are tables and other chairs. Every chair seems occupied by a child or adult. Somewhere in the room, a child is crying, a cry that rises above the buzz talk of so many people. Strewn about the floor are dozens and dozens of pieces of white paper, and people are walking over them without any thought of picking them up. Seeing this lack of concern, I am all of a sudden afraid. Is this where they register for school? My mother asks a woman at one of the tables. The woman looks up slowly as if she had heard, has heard this question once too often. She nods. She is tiny, almost as small as the girl standing beside her. The woman's hair is set in a mass of curlers, and all of those curlers are made of paper money. Here a dollar bill, there a five dollar bill. The girl's hair is arrayed in curls, but some of them are beginning to droop. This makes me happy. On the table beside the woman's pocketbook is a large notebook worthy of someone in high school. And looking at me at the notebook, or and looking at me looking at the notebook, the girl places her hand possessively on it. In her other hand, she holds several pencils with thick crowns of additional erasers. These the forms you got to use, my mother asked the woman, picking up a few pieces of paper from the table. Is this what you have to fill out? The woman tells her yes, but that she needs to fill out only one. I see, my mother says, looking about the room. Then, would you help me with this form? That is, if you don't mind. The woman asks my mother what she needs. This form, would you mind helping me fill it out? The woman still seems not to understand. I can't read it. I don't know how to read or write, and I'm asking you to help. My mother looks at me, then looks away. I know, I know almost all of her looks, but this one is brand new to me. Would you help me then? The woman says, why, sure, and suddenly she appears happier, so much more satisfied with everything. She finishes the form for her daughter, and my mother and I step aside to wait for her. We find two chairs nearby and sit. My mother is now diseased, according to the girl's eyes, and until the moment her mother takes her and the form to the front of the auditorium, the girl never stops looking at my mother. I stare back at her. Don't stare, my mother says to me. You know better than that. Another woman out of the ebony ads takes the woman's child away. Now, the woman says upon returning, let's see what we can do for you two. My mother answers the questions the woman reads off the form. They start with my last name and then on with the first and middle names. This is school, I think. This is going to school. My mother enunciates each word of my name. This is my mother. As the questions goes on, she takes from her pocketbook document after document, as if they will support my right to attend school, as if she has been saving them up for just this moment. Indeed, she takes out more papers than I have ever seen her do in other places. My birth certificate, my baptismal record, a doctor's letter concerning my recent bout with chicken pox, rent receipts, records of immunization, a letter about our public assistance payments, even our marriage license. Every single paper that has anything even remotely to do with my five-year-old life. Few of the papers are needed here, but it does not matter, and my mother continues to pull out the documents with the purposefulness of a magician pulling out a long string of scarves. She has learned that money is the beginning and end of everything in this world, and then when the woman finishes, my mother offers her 50 cents, and the woman accepts it without hesitation. My mother and I are just about the last parent and child in the room. My mother presents the form to a woman sitting in front of the stage, and the woman looks at it and writes something on a white card, which she gives to my mother. Before long, the woman who has taken the girl with the drooping curls appears from behind us, speaks to the sitting woman, and introduces herself to my mother and me. She is to be my teacher, she tells my mother. My mother stares. We go into the hall where my mother kneels down to me. 
Her lips are quivering. I'll be back to pick you up at 12 o'clock. I don't want you to go nowhere. You just wait right here. Listen to every word she say. I touch her lips and press them together. It is an old, old game between us. She puts my hand down at my side, which is not part of the game. She stands and looks a second at the teacher, then she turns and walks away. I can see where she has darned one of her socks the night before. Her shoes make loud sounds in the hall. She passes through the doors and I can still hear the loud sounds of her shoes. And even when the teacher turns me toward the classrooms and I hear what must be the singing and talking of all the children in the world, I can still hear my mother's footsteps above it all. Yeah, so the, I mean, this is like the shortest uh, story, I believe, in this collection. Uh, I think it's also the most uh, famous one. In fact, I remember having to read the story and answer questions about it for the SATs uh, in high school. Um, and I took the ACTs. We were not so privileged as to read Edward P. Jones. Uh, I al- I also read um, I also read uh, the remains of the day, an excerpt of the remains of the day. That's and, a, that's a great book. We should do one on that one sometime. Yeah, actually, yeah, actually, we should. That's a you know, it, 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 that's the novel that got me into like, can I write a novel? Is it a possibility? Right. That's um, yeah. so definitely something to talk about. But I mean, anyway, I mean this this is such a great story. Uh, it's very short, and by being so condensed you get tons of poetry that is both like, you know, actual poeticisms and also poeticisms by like way of like total understatement, like, you know, near the end, for example, in the last paragraph, when uh, this, this girl is going into, uh, you know, the, the kind of like, it's not the adult world, but it's the first kind of step towards adulthood, right? A new world. Um, and she's used to playing this, like, you know, this game, right, with her with her uh, mother. I touch her lips and press them together. It is an old, old game between us. She puts my hand down on my side, which is not part of the game, right? Because this is supposed to be a serious moment for the child. And she's trying mm-hmm. to impress upon her that this is going to be a serious moment going forward. Um, the, you know, and the story just like straddles this line very nicely of on the one hand, it's just like a great, like child's point of view, like how a child would view things. Um, you know, like, like, for example, like all these like papers coming out, like magicians, mm-hmm. like p- pulling uh, scarves out of, out of a hat or something. This is the, the way that a child would look at it, but it's also kind of, you know, it's also reality in the sense that if you're an illiterate mother, and if you're black, let's say this is like in the 50s or 60s taking place, uh, you already are going to be very wary of the world. You're going to be wary of what might happen to your daughter, right? Uh, so you will come, you know, overly prepared perhaps with tons and tons of documents. And your child viewing this would, you know, would, would kind of like uh, uh, use this kind of metaphor, right? But on mm-hmm. the other on the other hand, you know, besides being like a great child's point of view, it's also it also straddles the line between childhood and adulthood because there's clearly you know an, an overvoice of adulthood as well, right? I mean the first mm-hmm. the first line, right? On an otherwise unremarkable September morning, long before I learned to be ashamed of my mother, she takes my hand and we set off down New Jersey Avenue to begin my first day of school. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, like this gives you the characterization of her as an adult or perhaps her like as a teenager, maybe as an adult, she looks back on her, you know, shame over her mother as like something to be ashamed of herself, right? That she shouldn't feel Mm -hmm. this way, right? My mother is great. She's protective. Look, look at all these wonderful things that she's doing for me. Um, so it, it, it just kind of like, you know, weaves in and out of a childhood and that point of view in adulthood. And it just does it, it just incredibly well. There's so yeah. many like quotable, memorable lines, like another example of like the way that a child might think is when she's looking at these pencils, right. Uh, this, this other child has in her other hand, she holds several pencils with thick, crowns of additional erasers like i don't i don't know about you but when i was a kid i loved getting like nice fucking pencils or like nice pens like especially when those like mechanical pens started coming out with like the multiple you know like sometimes you'd press down you get a blue you get a green you get a, a yellow like these different kinds of inks um and this is exactly how, how a kid would interpret this like thick yeah. crowns well, especially the you know I, I i always remember uh i i never got the like the erasers that fit that are like that fit over the top of the pencil you know they're shaped like something yeah you know that was not that i couldn't afford it it just wasn't a part of my uh you know Mm -hmm. my cultural expression or whatever but i remember always being impressed by those when other kids had them yeah yeah and and i mean like it's just this nice kind of like you know uh, interplay between both uh, uh both points of view and also like you know like a subtle little like common i mean like so it's like when she she says finally that she can't read right i don't know how to read or write first of all you get exactly why she she as a kind of like you know maybe teenager adolescent might start to be ashamed of her mother right Mm -hmm. uh this this is like the first kind of settled set of details that really kind of like let you know why i mean but, but but this also clearly speaks to race i mean if you look in the 50s and 60s i'm sure that the majority of people that could not read right they they weren't white people right they had to be natives they had to be hispanics right they had to be immigrants of some sort or they had to be black people right uh Mm -hmm. this is this is uh so that you get a subtle racial comment there well Um, it's also a class comment as well yeah class comment too yeah yeah it's it's like intra-racial class conflict yeah, which is subtly interwoven into the story. You know, these. I mean, you have to assume that. You know, this was before, like, uh, you know, the, the all, all these programs that like get white people into all these inner city schools. You know, like probably most of these teachers are people that are, you know, somewhat from the community or at least like adjacent communities, like Virginia or Maryland or something like that. You know, and and they have all these curlers in their hair. One of them has a curler that actually has like money on it (laughs) for whatever reason or maybe that's her perception of it or whatever but um yeah like the you know the sort of dawning awareness that like you know these people are like me but they're not like me exactly you know and it's 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 put in the story like it's just it's it's in the story narratively but it's not necessarily in the narrator's overt perception you know, it's something that you bring to it as someone that has knowledge of the world outside of this book. And that's because it's not a very like the prose itself is not necessarily childish. Like, you know, you think yeah. of like William Blake poems or like James Emanuel poems where they use very 
uh, simple and like childlike rhymes and cadences in order to capture like a child's perspective. This doesn't have that necessarily. It captures it by things that are not overtly included mm-hmm. in it that are outside of the narrator's awareness at the time that they're describing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also you you still get the sense, right, throughout that, you know, the, uh, the mother is very kind of, you know, fearful of like speaking of like loss in the city, right. And the city's encroachment, she's very fearful of what the city might pretend what it has, right. What am I do to her, her family, right. Um, there's this mm-hmm. like really nice, uh, line, right. When she's like taking out these documents, uh, as the questions go on, she takes from her pocketbook document after document as if they will support my right to attend school as mm-hmm. if she has been saving them up for just this moment, right? Almost as if like, although we have like, you know, compulsory, compulsory uh, education at this point in America, she still is not trustful of the idea that her child can be allowed into the school. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, right? She says that a- a- as you go higher and higher up in this kind of, you know, scale of respectability, uh, she has to be kind of, you know, aggressive with them, right? She has to push back. She has to not allow herself to be bullied by this world because this is the only way that you could survive, right? In the intersection of class and race uh, mm-hmm. in this story and other stories and yeah. in this world. It's also, it's an empathy building story as well because the 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 ending of it with the the child watching her mother walk away and all of the, you know, the the play and the the chatter of the children is like completely drowned out by the sound of her mother, her mother's footsteps in the hallway. I mean, you have to imagine that this mother was like wearing heels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like she dressed up mm-hmm. to come bring her child to school. And I think especially like, you know, as two white guys or whatever, or two, you know, two, you know, not like abjectly poor people in our lives you know we've all seen someone like at a function or in public that is like way overdressed yeah for it and and your initial thing is to be like oh that person is clueless they don't know what is going on but you know they they might have a very good reason for thinking that 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 is something that they need to do yeah you know like not everybody is like a white hipster that is doing it for attention, you know, like some mm-hmm. people are just operating from like different understandings and parameters than you are, you know, I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a subtle, but good example of how, you know, art can't really change anything in the world writ large, but it can certainly help to hone and improve your understanding of like the small scale things that happen in your life, you know, yeah. like someone that comes to a function way overdressed for what it is and you know maybe there is something about them or their life that that made them do that you know yeah it's nice yeah i mean i've often said to myself that one of the reasons why i got into art and specifically films was you know i I wanted like a a a better understanding of myself specifically why am i getting in all these fucked up relationships again and again and again you know as as a teenager or whatever um so you know, that's, that's definitely something that it could do for you, right? If you are, uh, you know, um, if you're open to such, uh, anyway, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great story and probably my, my favorite, uh, uh within here. Um, maybe as I take a drink of water, maybe you could start off with, uh, 
maybe say something about the night Rhonda Ferguson was killed, which is the next story. I'm going to put myself on mute as I do this so you can't hear my disgusting gargle. Well, everyone loves mouth sounds. What are you talking about? Uh, yeah, so the night Rhonda Ferguson was killed uh, is a story about uh, a character named Cassandra Lewis, who is kind of, a, a, I don't know what you would call it, like a bit of an itinerant child, a homeless child. Mm -hmm. Her parents have died uh, for reasons that are un, unspecified in the story. Uh, they have died. And so she sort of floats between different people's couches, essentially. Uh, she spends time, uh, a lot of time on her sister and brother-in-law's uh, house. Uh, she spends time with the titular character, Rhonda Ferguson. That's kind of her surrogate family. That's the family that has most closely adopted her as, as, as a member. Uh, and she seems to just sort of float between uh, different milieus because ultimately, you know, talking about the notion of the, the city and these larger structures that do or do not capture people, her, she's a minor and her parents have died, but she's has not, uh, she has not attritioned into anything. You know, she has not been absorbed into anything. She is left essentially to fend for herself. And so this has made her into a rather kind of a bitter and mean character in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, of the protagonists in the book, she's probably the one that is the closest to like a bully. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another character in the book that she is sort of constantly the the modern term we would use is like slut shaming mm -hmm. you know she is constantly making cracks about the fact that she is constantly floating between relationships and talking about how this latest person that she has found is the love of her life and somebody that uh you know is going to save her from you know from her situation and she makes a crack like you know there's all these women that they just they open their legs for whatever dick is around and, and that's you, mm -hmm. you know, and she clearly has like resentment toward this person because of that. You don't exactly know what are the things that have happened in her personal life that make her resentful toward that kind of way of being specifically. But well, you you, kind you, of you, you, yeah, you get a little bit of that. I mean, like, like the opening sentence talks about her being like uh, made fun of as like a Mack truck. Right. Like, so mm -hmm. she, she's fat and like, you, you, you notice like, um, like some of the kind of like more extreme bullying comes out. Like there's this uh, really, uh, uh, maybe we could read some of this now. There's this part, right, where like her car breaks down and like she's driving out of the front, her, her car breaks down. And um, uh, suddenly this like guy who's like handsome and tall or whatever, right, uh, uh, comes down and is like, hey, I, I, I could uh, uh, help you with that. And Cassandra is like, oh yeah, sure. And she's like very, you know, she, she's very, she's very happy to get this attention. It's clear yeah. that he's giving some sort of interest in her, like romantically. Mm -hmm. She wants to see where this is going to go. And suddenly, like, you know, some of her friends like run out of the house and uh, like they start screaming, like some, some guy tried to like rape, rape uh, one of these girls. And uh, she starts like fighting some kid thinking that he's the one to try to rape her. And suddenly this like completely this like, you know, let's call it very masculine behavior seems to really turn off this guy who is like presented mm -hmm. as a kind of like Southern gentleman, right? Stone cold Bama is the way that he's uh, described. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, like, so after this, like positive interaction where you think like, wow, like, you know, perhaps maybe something nice uh, might happen. Maybe she'll get like a nice date or something out of this. Uh, the way that it ends is um, like, I don't give three fucks who he is. Cause Sandra said about like the, the, the kid that uh, potentially assaulted someone, she began to struggle, but he held both her arms. And the more he held her, the calmer she became whatever had been in his eyes before Melanie screamed was there no more. And she would have given her arms to have it back. Right. And after that, right. When she gets back in the car, it starts up again. That's when she starts doing some of the more kind of, uh, extreme uh, bullying, right? She says, yeah. you know, you know, Cassandra said, I'm fucking tired of all your talk about somebody being cute all the time. You get on my nerves with that shit. You sound like a damn cuckoo clock with just one tune, right? And then she keeps going on and on about this. And, you know, uh, it, it's not a coincidence that, you know, she herself was trying to do that very same thing that she's accusing her friends, mm -hmm. right, of, of, of doing yeah. now. Well, and it's it's kind of, a realistic detail that this uh, kind of handsome Southern gentleman or whatever is like interested in her mm -hmm. just on the basis that, you know, that he comes from the South, you know, probably there's not a lot of, uh, of small women that he yeah. dealt with in his day-to-day -day life, you know, the land of, of soul food and fried food and sweet tea and shit like that, you know, like he is probably used to, like, you know, in, in Washington, D.C., in this urban milieu where probably food is not as common to come. I, I mean, we're so divorced from this now, the idea that, like, food is like a scarce resource, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in the wake of the of the 1970s and Richard Nixon essentially declaring that, like, food is never going to be a, a an, an issue in a presidential election again, if he has mm -hmm. anything to say about it. You know, we're very divorced from that, but you know, probably most of the, most of the people in this town, I mean, probably on average, there's more overweight and obese people in, in the black community, but mm -hmm. on average, people were skinnier back then, you know, especially in cities where, 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 where people were, where, where there was more competition, you know, for that kind of thing. And so the fact that she is, you know, kind of a bigger girl based on the textual evidence makes her more of an outcast than it would now in either America or the black community writ large, but that's something that he's probably more used to. And so he in, intrinsically sees like the sort of, you know, uh, like sassy, sarcastic, uh, like the likable aspects of her that come out when she first meets him. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. like he, he is someone that is primed to see her more as a person than as like a, you know, than as a figure of ridicule or something like that. But she then fails to conform to probably what he also expects, which is a slightly more feminine affect to, to you know, to someone, you know, kind of a more like uh, passive or, or, or nurturing nature. And so he's kind of turned off immediately because that's, that is not the kind of woman that he probably grew up around, you know? So yeah. it's very, 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 I mean, it's easy to spam the word subtle in this conversation, but it's, it's, it's all happening under the surface of the text. But if you kind of sit back and think about it, like it's it's perfectly logical. And it's also perfectly logical that this would be something that would really set her off and and reveal kind of the uglier side of her, because even the few fleeting glimpses that she has of a, you know, a, a better life where she's treated by people with more dignity and humanity, like are, are ripped from her when the things that she doesn't have control over 
like the sort of bitter, aggressive aspect of herself that exists in response to the rather abject circumstances that she has found herself in come out. You know, that's not something that she probably has conscious control over. It's just, it's like an instinctive, natural response to the life that she's lived. And yet it fundamentally severs her from someone that might be able to appreciate her, you know, for who she is outside of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and we should probably talk about like the, uh, the title character, Rhonda Ferguson. Mm -hmm. She's like a locally famous, uh, it seems like teenage or perhaps even like early twenties, uh, singer. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, she seems to be like on the verge of signing some sort of lucrative, contract and she's she's actually friends with uh, cassandra and she constantly tells her stuff like you know uh cassandra's always like teasing her like oh when you get famous you'll completely forget about me in this kind of like self-deprecating way and she's like no I'll, I'll always you know uh come back and i'm gonna take you guys with me so on and so forth um and i i mean she, she, she she's like an interesting uh feature because uh you know, like it's 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 something that you know it's essentially kind of like a a, a casino, right? Where you, you have to be born with a certain genetic gifts to be a singer. In most cases, uh, you have to have like enough luck in your life where you could sort of come out of it at the other end, where you could become a singer. Um, and it, it it kind of represents this kind of like you know uh, impossible attainment for most mm -hmm. most of the characters within because i mean most of the time that we see uh cassandra uh riding around with friends they're just kind of you know they're they're yelling at each other or she's like skipping school or you see her like in situations where she's homeless um and uh, uh not truly able to understand her herself or her life and near the end of the uh, uh story quite suddenly without explanation uh, Rhonda Ferguson gets killed by Jeffrey, who is the uh, father of her child. And there, there's no reason that's ever given, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those mm -hmm. things like with the railroad in, in the first story um, and other things that happen in later stories. It's just like this force of nature that that comes and it sort of damages mm -hmm. you, right? And it has a lot to do with, with class. It has things to do with race but it, again it, it doesn't have to be made uh, uh so explicit right and um like th this this uh this uh, uh the death is described very interestingly right you have for example white cops that are standing around and they're trying to like you know the the like the the, the line is something like uh they seem to be aware of the fact that they will never be involved as, in something as important as this moment, right? Where they're trying to keep people away from the scene of a murder. Perhaps they will never have to deal with such a thing ever again. Um, and uh, uh, so after Rhonda gets killed, uh, this is how it's described. Uh, a woman next to Anita's mother said, he just shot her for no reason at all. I was playing out there with my grandbaby and, and I could see her practicing in the basement. Cassandra stepped toward the policeman with the folded arms and one told her, get back, get back. He shot her and th then just came out here and sat down on the steps, the woman said, like he was waiting for a ride to come pick him up. Rhonda's father was a very thrifty man. And had he been there, Cassandra knew, had his daughter been in the basement alive and practicing, all those lights would not have been on. Right. And again, like, you know, that's a nice little detail, right? You know, 
Uh, well, that's it, it tells that's you the lot. kind of detail that most writers miss. Yeah, you know, yeah. like the, the 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 denial that she engages with in first. Yeah, and then just a small, seemingly trivial detail that like pulls this person back to reality. Yeah, you know, yeah. like oh no, like of course these cops would not be standing outside of this house if yeah. everything was hunky dory. But like that aspect, you know, doesn't doesn't sink in. It's the fact that something about your life as you experience it is suddenly different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's and, a and detail that only you would know, right? The cops would never know this detail about the father, about the fact that, oh, those lights would not be on. But you, right, this being the extent of your your world, the extent of your reality, you know that. And since that has changed, since that is somehow out of place, right, you have to come to terms with that reality mm -hmm. here. Um, one, I, I just want to check one thing. Um, yeah, what's what's weird is I, I, I had in my head, because I guess the 90s are just kind of a blur to me because I was a yeah. child during them, that this, like, one of one, the thing that is, like, kind of the real, you know, it's sad that Rhonda Ferguson is killed, but the underlying tragedy of this is not that she's killed, it's that the these the people that live like this they have to pin their hopes on these people that win the lottery as you say yeah you know they have to they have to live vicariously through these few people that sort of slip through the cracks of racial and economic oppression and uh, and find some kind of success uh, outside of this milieu that they are raised in and the the this is released in like 92, I had in my head that like this was around the time of the OJ trial, but that was actually a few years later. But you sort of saw the same phenomenon at work, you know, like this almost presaged like that where, you know, OJ was like this, uh, you know, this nice black guy that made good, you know, on his natural God-given talents. Mm -hmm. And so even though pretty clearly he was a murderer, like ultimately enough people have like had their lives ruined not being a criminal or being only a very petty criminal that if he can sort of bite back against that system mm -hmm. and point out that like you have no basis on which to judge me you have no basis on which to say that i'm guilty of anything because you are guilty of something far far more odious and evil than than my stabbing my my bitch ex-wife and her and her and her lover Mm -hmm. You know, like, e even though on some level, it's like evil to, to look at that and revel in it and say like, oh, he's innocent. Oh, he's actually a great man. Like, it's wrong to do that. But you fundamentally understand like the impulse, mm -hmm. you know, you understand why something like that could happen because like, what the fuck else do these people have to look forward to? What, what do these people have to to live through other than the people that prove that like every other facet of their lives that is oppressing them wrong, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and speaking of uh, uh, the nineties and like pinning your hopes on, you know, essentially these lottery winners uh, there's that line from the rapper juvenile uh, something like if I, you know, give a dollar every time I come around, I'd be broke. Right. Like you can't there, there, like there, there's no way that you could depend on, um, you know, on on any kind of savior in that sense. Right. There there needs to be some sort of, you know, systemic and systematic changes. And yet uh, with the way that kind of like these like de facto lottery winnings work is it does keep, you know, tons of people in a sense, a little bit of like complacency. Right. Where they think, 
you know, that could be me, right? Whether it's like Americans who, you know, believe they are temporarily, you know, disgraced, downtrodden, fallen billionaires, or whether it's like, you know, uh, kids in the projects thinking like, what if I could be, you know, like a great basketball player or whatever, um, you know, all, all, so much of like, like so much of the process in society ends up being a way of getting people into the mentality of lottery winnings, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to anything else, probably because very little else of substance is in fact given and made available to them. Well, I mean, the entirety of capitalist society is essentially a lottery-based society. You know, I mean, it's basically like if you are born in the right circumstances and the right set of things happen to you, maybe you will be, you know, maybe you will innovate how you make, uh, you know, gaskets for washing machines or something like that, yeah. you know, but that's, that's not something people are willing to deal with. And so they have to, you know, affect these fictions of like, oh no, it's actually merit that 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 is the reason that that this happened and 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 the sort of uh, like I, I would say a lot of this book you could describe as you know what marx might call like the lumpen proletariat or whatever mm -hmm. or the the unclass conscious proletariat you know it's people that don't really have a sense of like what are the larger structural forces at work in their life exactly except race which they all understand perfectly Maybe, maybe, maybe too perfectly, but I mean, they all understand that, but the, the, the larger mechanisms that make that salient are not exactly something that is lucid to them. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of uh, left making sense of the detritus of their lives absent that larger understanding. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, I just, speaking I, of which, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I just want to finish uh, the story with like the last couple of paragraphs because they're very nice. Uh, if you want to say something before that about the story. No, I was going to move on. So you finished the, the, the. Yeah, let's just because we, we didn't really read much from here uh, too much. Uh, just to give you a sense of how this ends. Anita's father and brother were playing chess at the kitchen table when they came in. Anita and her mother took Cassandra into the girls room. Cassandra sat on the bed with her hands in her lap and looked out the window. Anita stood at the foot of the bed, one arm around the bedpost, looking down at Cassandra. An eyeless and very old teddy bear leaning back against her bed pillows had fallen over when Cassandra sat down. The ticking of the Big Ben clock Anita's grandfather had given her was the loudest sound in the room. In the kitchen, her brother was proclaiming a victory over their father for only the third or fourth time in the boy's life. Beyond her window, Anita could see the twinkling lights of Washington. Anita's mother came in and gave Cassandra a cup of cocoa sitting in a saucer. I got to be going, I got to be going home, Cassandra whispered, saying home as if it were a foreign word. Anita told her to drink. Anita watched as her mother helped Cassandra off with her clothes and into one of her mother's nightgowns. She made a pallet for her daughter beside the bed and turned out the light when she left the room. Occasionally, Cassandra would drift into what Anita thought was sleep. All the while, Cassandra gritted her teeth. Sometime way late in the night, Cassandra spoke out, and at first Anita thought she was talking in her sleep. She asked Anita to sing that song she had sung in the car on the way home. Anita sang, 
long after her parents had gone to bed, long after she stopped wondering if Cassandra was listening, Anita sang. She sang on into the night for herself alone, her voice pushing back everything she did not yet understand. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the music, this, this kind of like symbol of escape, right, that is mm-hmm. being played out in, in Rhonda Ferguson is mm-hmm. now something that's kind of internalized. You see the twinkling mm-hmm. of Washington, right? We know that's kind of like, you know, that that's the state that's the most powerful country on the planet at that point and still now. Um, and, and yet, you know, all you could do is just internalize this, the song and the symbol and, and try to make the best of that. And it's very sad because she's sort of, canonically the second best singer in the book mm-hmm. yeah you know or in the in the story but it's also heavily implied that nobody would ever buy a record of this woman singing you know yeah. so it's like it's this thing that she is kind of good at and that she has access to and yet it can never take her where it could have taken Rhonda ferguson mm-hmm. you know yeah. and she's aware of that and yet she is like fixated on it mm-hmm. beautiful ending. yeah yeah. Indeed, and which unfortunately leads us into, I mean, it's not a, it's still a pretty good story, but I would say it's probably the weakest story of the collection, which is Young Lions. Um, I think it's the weakest so far. I mean, maybe there's some other ones that are kind of like a little, uh, you know, like like an orange line train to Boston seems a little, uh, like you that know, one it's, is it's it's short though. You have it's, to, it's, yeah, it's, it's short and it's nice, right? But I, I feel like there's probably uh, more individual elements in Young Lions that you know uh, add up to a bit more, right? I, I know Dan, you know, said, uh, in his review, Dan Schneider of Cosmoetica, uh, he he said that he finds the ending to be like a bit melodramatic and some other like flaws. And I I guess some of that is true, but I I, I probably have a higher estimation of the story than uh, either you or him. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, to me, it's just, it's more generic than other stories in the collection. Yeah. You know, it's more, I mean, we, there have been plenty of short stories about, you know, these like petty criminals mm-hmm. going about their day. I mean, in some ways it's kind of an anticipation. There are aspects of it that are an anticipation of like what Tarantino would do in his movies a few years mm-hmm. later, like the character of Manny, mm-hmm. the, 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 the the fencer and the sort of highest level criminal that we see in this book is mm-hmm. not, you know, with his gaunt frame and oversized Hawaiian shirts and his bar full of pictures of people that he's had beaten up, mm-hmm. you know, or and also celebrities that have come into the bar yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Like there is something about that that is sort of the like, uh, you know, the the, the hip, cool, co- or, or like funny conception of crime that Tarantino yeah. would popularize a couple years later. Like it tells you that in some sense, Tarantino is not the innovator of this so much as he was like the lottery winner of this zeitgeist that kind of existed mm-hmm. in the 90s as, as violent crime was ultimately, you know, on a multi-decade decrease and becoming less of like a visceral lived reality and more of like an, an abstract thing that you could kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, conceptualize and, and aestheticize, you know, mm-hmm. probably Martin Scorsese did the best job of that, but this is kind of biting off of the same fruit, mm-hmm. you know, and in, in, in that time, um, you know, it's a story that has a lot of admirable elements. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly paragraphs and pages that, 
you can read and be like, oh, this is very much in the vein of what he's doing elsewhere in the book. Mm-hmm. But I think it's missing some of like the interstitia yeah. that the other stories have that really flesh it out, yeah. that make it, you know, it's just a little too, it's a little too pat mm-hmm. at times, you know, and it's a little too like stuck on the, uh, the, the uh, aesthetic enjoyment of the criminality and, and, and away from the like deeper, subtler explorations of like the pathologies of the, the subaltern or the, mm-hmm. or the lump invention or whatever, you know, that is, that is present in much of the rest of the book. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing I'll say, like speaking to the whole kind of like Tarantino angle, I, I think that's accurate. I think, uh, when he talks about crime uh, in his uh, and also like like just other stories in this book, uh, it tends to be a bit weaker because I mean, uh, you like there's definitely things that you know are just kind of like fanciful exaggerations or things that would never actually happen. Like uh, in this um, uh, other story uh, that he has later on, uh, his mo- I think it's his mother's house um, is the title. Uh, like it, it basically ends with this like a uh, criminal kid who's already kind of like on his way to like actual like real serious riches has like people working for him and he like literally like murders someone like in front of like literally like a dozen plus people right mm-hmm. and that, it's it, it's like that whole kind of tarantino slash sopranos uh, angle with like uh you know tony soprano like mowing people down with his fucking car like in the parking lot in front of like you know all all these people like watching it as if that would ever actually happen like in a mafia setting or you know know, in in defense of that show it did get better about that Mm -hmm. in later seasons but yeah, yeah yeah that's the whole you know, I mean, that's what I said. It's like it's like a, it's the kind of thing that exists because there is a cultural fascination with the abstract idea of crime, and in some ways, that's like naturally what you would expect to happen. You know, as some of the uh, the seedier aspects of a capitalist society, as it learns to kind of deal with those and tamp mm-hmm. them down, and as people get some some distance from it you know, they, they, it becomes a, an object of curiosity and examination rather than just like this visceral thing that you have to deal with and avoid. And, and, and that is like a real threat impinging on your day-to-day life. Yeah. You know, it's like in the seventies, the, the reaction to that was like death wish was sort of this, uh, uh, this cultural desire to take revenge on people that have wronged you. And in the nineties, it's like, well, you know, let's see what was going on with them that made them want to do it in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. like that's just a natural sociological outgrowth. And the one thing I'll say that's interesting is I I don't know Edward P. Jones's personal life. You know, I don't know what class he grew up in. I don't know if he grew up poor or if he was more middle class or even part of like the black bourgeoisie or whatever. Um, but I would imagine that he probably had about the same proximity to crime as somebody like Martin Scorsese, you know, where it was just kind of a thing that he was on the periphery of and that he saw the the effects of in his neighborhood, but it wasn't specifically something that he was a part of. Mm. But Scorsese, because he approached it from the level of his art and his engagement with film, he was sort of able to fill in that gap with his artistry in a way that I think Edward P. Jones 
wasn't quite able to because gangsterism just does not translate as well into prose as it does Mm -hmm. outside of Dan's work (laughs) into prose as it does into, into movies and television because the, the viscerality of it and the thrill that you can take in seeing people transgress these social norms is it's more abstract in prose than it is in, in visual art. Yeah. Um, and I mean, just like speaking to some of the like elements that are, you know, like, uh, uh like pretty good in this story, uh, yeah. the, the way that it starts, like, so first of all, I mean, uh, when it begins, you, you have no idea about any, <coughs> any of the kind of like, you know, uh, criminality uh, of the lead character. Um, and you get this kind of like slow buildup, right? So, uh, he stood naked before the open refrigerator in the darkened kitchen downing the last of the milk in a half gallon carton. Carol once again had taped a note to the carton. Caesar Matthews did not have to read it to know that it told him that she loved him with all her heart or that she would miss him all that day. She used to pin such notes to her pillow before she went off in the morning, leaving him still asleep. But in the night, when she brushed her hair as she prepared for bed, she would find the note still pinned to the pillow, undisturbed and so perhaps unread. So now she taped them to milk cartons, for he could not begin his day without drinking milk or she taped them to his gold key ring or pinned them to the zippers of the expensive pants she knew he would wear that day. In more than two years, the wording on the notes had not changed very much. Sometimes when he thought of it, uh, he would fold the paper with the words and place it on the kitchen table between the salt and the paper shakers to let her know he had come upon it before he ventured out. This morning, after he had finished the last of the milk without reading the words, he tossed a carton in high arc across the room into the trash can. He pulled up the window shade and let in the morning light. He was anxious to be out in the streets. There was nothing like an empty apartment to bring down the soul. So like I mean, at the beginning, you just sort of think like, uh, okay, he's just like, you know, this kind of like, you know, he's a bad boyfriend of some sort. Maybe he's using her for some uh, purpose. You don't really get a, a sense necessarily of criminality, but that kind of unfolds little by little. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, it comes out very starkly, you know, like some mm-hmm. lines about like shooting someone in the face or whatever and in other situations. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like a slow unfolding. And you also definitely get like little like, you know, hints of uh, a character that tends to humanize him here and like elsewhere in the story. Uh, and also like this kind of this thing that early on, like it becomes a controlling idea. He was anxious to be out on the streets. There was nothing like an empty apartment to bring down the soul, right? You get the sense all throughout that he simply cannot be around himself at any given time. He mm-hmm. has to be around others. He has to always be doing something. And a lot of this honestly, honestly seems to seems to, especially with the uh, story's ending, it seems to imply that he probably does have either some level of guilt about like his life trajectory and the kind of activities he engages in, or at least perhaps not the kind of confidence that he uh, uh, either shows or assumes himself to have, right? Like at the very end, he starts to run uh, away, like the, the rain is sort of like washing away his address book. And he he generally seems like very kind of 
scared and also very surprised, right? And, you know, it, like this like opening paragraph, like you think of Carol as this like pathetic girlfriend. And in some ways, at least at the beginning she is, but by the end of the story, she definitely like does develop at least a couple of like more dimensions. It's not really, you know, you could argue it's not sketched out enough, but she definitely experiences a character arc that shows herself to be stronger in many ways, more uh, self-aware uh then 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 uh this um uh th then caesar right like mm -hmm. she she's able to stand up for herself and her convictions and kind of like what she wants out of the world in a way that caesar himself shows that he he cannot really do right so he's not this kind of like you know he's not like a cartoon villain in the vein of like a, a tarantino villain right he, yeah. he has like some layers to him no, that, that 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 come out right as as yeah, the story just, unfolds it's, it's it's not enough yeah to make it work in the way that other stories work but yeah absolutely he has dimensionality to him um yeah you know what what going back to the idea of like uh, the the alienating effects of bureaucracy and larger systems of control on interpersonal connection and community as sort of a running through line of this book. You could make a case that in this story, the entirety of Caesar's criminal career stems somewhat from the like cold, stentorian, bureaucratic personality of his father, like having robbed him of a, a sense of deep personal connection from an early mm. point in his life. It, it, the story says at one point that his father was the kind of person that if at this time he saw him from like his office window or whatever, he would bound down the steps three at a time, seize him and call for a cop to come arrest him because mm. this is the person that robbed him. Yeah. You know? Uh, and I mean, you have to assume that that is, there is a coldness to that that was prop that probably permeated his childhood. You know, the yeah. mother doesn't seem to be in the picture, and and, uh, the, and, the, and the, the the mother actually dies, or right? like one of the elements, like that, like one of the ways that he tries to get you to empathize with Caesar is like after like seeing all the kinds of like you know disgusting things that he does. You, you get this like element thrown in of like him, like recalling, for example, his mother dying uh, when mm -hmm. he was younger or like, you know, like even it's like a little detail, but they call her the retarded woman, right? That he's sort of like scoping out to sort of steal from uh, when he sits at a park bench somewhat close to her, like she sits down and she starts eating these like uh tangerine slices and like the wafting of the of the uh orange scent the citrus scent goes mm -hmm. into his nose and it's kind of like you know it's almost like um you know you're getting like a, a little bit of this kind of like physical empathy right that's like one, one of the little strokes like granted you know i i do agree that it's not really enough especially given the length of the story it, it is actually you know fairly long um mm -hmm. and, and you don't get as much character as you do in some of the other you know equally lengthy stories but you know it's it's one of those things mm -hmm. yeah another thing that is kind of interesting is that there are elements of the, there there's not any continuous story told through the stories and yeah. there's not like specific like a specific thematic or philosophical thing that he's trying to communicate consistently across every story mm -hmm. but there are motifs and ideas that make their way across stories so for example we find out that he is the character 
that got his hand cut by the main character of the last story, uh, but mm-hmm. which is something that I only realized when I reread the book because he's he makes a comment something about like you know it was like that oh, crazy really? old yeah. bitch that cut my hand two oh, weeks I ago see. when yeah. I tried to pull for something from her pocket, and that was like a nothing to him, but it was everything to her. Yeah, you know. But another thing that I'm only now appreciating as we're talking about it is in the the sort of you know canonical tale of this story, the store. Um, one of the things that the character Penny says to the main character in that book is that the idea of sleeping in the store is an abomination because you don't do your business and your personal life in the same place, mm-hmm. and like that's there is wisdom in that lesson and yet caesar has no access you know that's like a community wisdom that he himself somehow has no access to Mm -hmm. and that's like the thing that kind of undoes his life as it has been constructed so far you know Mm -hmm. the idea that he tries to bring his girlfriend that is just this unconnected unattached beneficiary of prime into the world of prime itself and yet his like the aggression and violence and anger that he uh, affects when he is doing crime, he cannot keep away from his girlfriend when she is clearly distressed at this thing that she has done. And he basically, I mean, possibly, you know, we don't know, you know, in, a, in, in abusive or fucked up and toxic relationships, there's every opportunity for these things to mend themselves, even when they shouldn't. But it seems like he has like terminally terminally alienated her, himself from her by the end of the story, yeah. and you know there, there there is a slice of wisdom elsewhere in the book happening to somebody else that might have told him that that is not you know that that he probably should not have approached this whole thing in the way that he did in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just just speaking to this kind of uh, end, right? Um, so like uh, uh, Carol, his girlfriend, uh, it gets like entangled in this in this thing that Caesar wants to do, which is like he sees like some sort of like you know uh, mentally like disabled woman that uh, he he tries to like trick out of her money, right? And uh, ultimately uh, he he does so uh, with like I guess Carol's help, and uh, he's like very concerned about the contents of of her purse and. You know, he's trying to like get the purse away from Carol and he's trying to make sure that all the money is uh, where it's supposed to be. Um, and as they're like walking down the street and like arguing about this, uh, uh, so like he took the purse, don't she said, taking it back for God's sake, don't. He slapped her and grabbed for the bag with the other hand. So this is the first time you see any kind of physical altercation. And it seems like it is the first time that he ever does anything, you know, uh, remotely like physically abusive towards her. It opened and everything inside fell out. Seeing the money fall to the ground, he slapped her again and she began to cry. Her nose bled and her bottom lip was split in two places and it bled as well. The bum had awakened and seeing the woman get slapped, he asked, what is it there with you two peoples? Caesar dropped the purse and Carol knelt down and began putting things back in. He pulled her to her feet. What the hell's wrong with you? Leave me alone, just leave me alone. She knelt and he pulled her up again. I said, leave me alone. He slapped her. He could now see the distance between them growing and seeing that distance and knowing he no longer had the power to close it. He slapped her once more, which is just like, it's a very kind of believable 
description, right? You could definitely imagine, you know, people in that kind of situation, like, okay, I, I, you know, I, I sort of had this mask for so long now that I can't do that anymore. I'm just going to, you know, embrace this nature. And since she's not of utility to me any longer, I'm going to continue in this rampage. The blow sent her back a few feet. She said, oh, several times, but everything sounded to him like, no, she put her hands to her face and trembled. Right. And then ultimately, like, she's like demanding, like, okay, let's go, let's go home. She watched him stepping up to her. He took out the Beretta and held it to her cheek. Did you hear what I said? There was no surprise in her face and there was no fear. He realized that if he beat her with the pistol, that too would not surprise her. And had he shot her in the face or through her, the, her, her heart, she would not have been surprised at that either. He pocketed the gun and stepped back. So like in some senses, like he was like completely emasculated by the fact that, you know, he, he used to be able to intimidate people to get his way. But she at this point is not scared as if like she figured something out, whether it's like she truly understands him now, what he's about or something else. You know, mm -hmm. she undergoes like a serious change of character that it, it, it works very nicely in contrast to the fact that he ultimately experiences this kind of breakdown where he's just kind of running from himself. He's running from the street, right? And the final line is, as the rain is coming and kind of like blurring out his address book where he has nowhere to go now, uh, he only knew that tonight would not be a night to be without shelter, right? But, you know, he essentially has no real shelter, right? He has no place anymore, no home anymore. He has no father that is concerned with him, right? So, I mean, anyway, like there are definitely like some really, like some some strong elements uh, in the text. And mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there's there's stuff in other stories that kind of, you know, uh, uh, reference uh, some of this material as well. Yeah. yeah. Some of that. I mean, I guess that leads us into what I would say is pretty almost incontrovertibly the best story in the book, which is yeah. the store. Yeah. You know, in some ways it's the most like classic short story. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could argue that it's maybe not as structurally daring as certain other uh, stories in the collection are, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a class, it's classic done well. You know, it really, it really like it's, it's believable. It is rich. It's textured. It's it's varied, and it's it's got a nice lesson. You know, it's like it's uh, it's real. Was I forget? Was it Cicero or Horace that said uh, art is entertainment and enlightenment? You I know? don't know. It's, I don't know. Sounds Roman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's 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 everything that you want out of a short story, and it's not my personal favorite i like the one about the the girl who raised pigeons better but this is the one that you really can't extricate anything from it without uh without like weakening the story you know and and, and it's also you know we we read a ton of ton of stuff uh, so far that is like directly poetic uh mm -hmm. this one with, with the narrator right the narrator is a protagonist and mm -hmm. um there, there, there's far less like poeticism in the description. Yes. It's much more kind of like, you know, uh, like the, I don't want to say it's like generic language. Cause I mean, it can't be with a great story. 
You can never mm-hmm. be in a situation where like the language is generic, but the language feels very prosaic, right? It's very kind of conversational. Uh, maybe like, like for example, like the way that it starts, uh, I'd been out of work three, three, four months when I saw her ad in the daily news, a few lines of nothing special, almost as if she really didn't want a response. On a different day in my life, I suppose I would have passed right over it. I had managed to squirrel away a little bit of money from the first slave I had, right? Meaning like at a period of slavery. And after that change ran out, I just bummed from friends for smokes, beer, and valuables. I lived with my mother, so rent and food weren't a problem. But my brother, when he came around with that family of his, liked to get in my shit and tell me I should be looking for another job. Usually my mother was okay, but I could tell when my brother and his flat butt wife had been around when I wasn't there. Because for days after that, my mother would talk that same shit about me getting a job like I'd never slaved a day before in my life. And I mean, it's it's a very interesting, uh, I actually, uh, I've been trying to like look, maybe I keep missing it for a name to the character. I, I'm just going to call him the narrator. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's given. Yeah, it might not be given at all. Right. And that that itself might be sort of like telling in terms of like what maybe some of the lessons that you want to be crass about of the story are. But I mean, even this like opening paragraph. Right. Um, you get lots of interesting details about him. Like he, it's not he's not a lazy person. Like he's definitely been working hard. And in fact, like it, like uh, in the next page, he, he says that, you know, I am a hard worker uh, and I take pride in that fact. Right. Whenever I did have jobs, I did actually do what I was supposed to do. But he definitely has like elements to him where he's pulled to do sort of let's call it the wrong thing. Right. Where um, he uh, like, like, for example, like when he answers this ad, he's, you know, more or less offered this job uh, when he's supposed to show up he kind of like fucks around like he he doesn't show up like he just spends like you know the, the night wandering the streets he calls it and yet um the way that it's des- described is so like first of all when he goes to ask about the job for whatever reason he says that he wakes up like very very early and he couldn't like go back to sleep right um he uh 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 he, he like like he just needs to wake up early and suddenly for whatever reason he finds himself at the store and then when he like fucks around and uh, uh like like skips work like the next day or something uh like in the middle of the day he just like wanders in right he wanders around the city and wanders inside the store as if there is like some kind of power like pulling him in there and part of that power you get the sense by the story's ending is that being a hard worker being someone that is like essentially mature in many respects uh he he's he is kind of drawn to responsibility he is drawn to more or less doing the the right thing even if there are bumps along the way um and you know it, it's it's like this interesting kind of thing where like you, you kind of expect him to be like a little bit of a fuck up but instead you know he he is someone that definitely grows like as the story goes on mm-hmm. well it, you you see it in the fact that he refers to jobs that he has had in the past as slaves yeah you know he and i mean presumably he has only worked for white men or white yeah. women in the past you know so he he has trouble uh taking any kind of passion or uh 
or meaning from acts that he perceives as existing only to benefit or enrich people outside of his community and outside of his like purview. You know, he is, uh, he, he's very drawn to the stories of his father working for this undertaker and uh, giving him the best day of work in his life and the undertaker. And when he doesn't show up the next day, the undertaker comes to abuse him. But when he realizes, no, he's not lazy. Like he intentionally didn't show up as like a fuck you to me. He tries to bargain with him and be like, no, you were great. I would love to have you back. And, 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 and but he'd already started working at a, a steel mill or a sawmill or something like that. Yeah. It's, I, the, the, it, there's a, a, a very subtle racial element to this story, which is the idea that fundamentally work that is done for something. And, and again, tying back into the general themes of the book, work that is done for something abstract or outside of something that you can call like a community or a social milieu that you feel yourself to be a part of is alienating. It's not something that you can just will yourself to want to be a part of because there's no real personal or spiritual benefit to it. You know, you're going to be the one that's paid the least, promoted the least. You're going to get fired first if, uh, if times get bad or if something mm-hmm. happens to the economy or the company, you know, but he himself is not an intrinsically lazy person. He's kind of a, a at the start of the story, he's a bit of like, you know, the modern term is like fail son or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, his brother is a little more successful. He's got a family, he's a harder worker and he chastises him. And he spends most of his time going to going out to dance and trying to find women to fuck and things like that. So he's in a bit of a rut and it's kind of telling that, you know, men who were in a rut in earlier eras, you know, they went around and they went to parties and they danced and they fucked and they did drugs and mm-hmm. things like that. And now they sit around and they play video games and they go, yeah. on the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a sign of cultural degeneration if ever there was one. Uh, but when he is presented with something that is that is challenging but fulfilling and connected to something that is a little more deeply rooted than just a mailroom in some big faceless company or something like that, he thrives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he takes it as a, as a personal challenge and as something that, if he does it well, it means something. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. It's, and. And and uh, yeah, there, there's also this interesting element where, um, like, r- race probably, with the exception of like uh, the fact that it seems like all these characters are are black, with the exception of that, like r- race uh, figures like even less prominently in this story than most of these stories, for that matter. Um, and like you know, like the story, like the title story, Lost in the City. Uh, race figures into it as well, but only to the extent that it's a very kind of like it, it's very much a contrast to what uh, her her life you know has become. Right, it's not what you'd expect a, a black woman to be like. You know, high power job, rich, uh, multiple investments, uh, snorting cocaine. Right. Um, in this story, though, uh, there's this interesting kind of like a side early on. Uh, with his mother and like white cops, right? So this is the way that it's described. Uh, When my brother and I were in our early teens, my mother said this to us with the most seriousness she had ever said anything. Never, even if you become kings of the whole world, I don't want you all messing with a white cop. 
the worst that my mother feared didn't happen to her baby boy that day. The cop only made me cross back on the green light and go all the way back to 7th Street, then come back to 5th Street and cross again on the green light, then go back to 7th to do it all over again. Then I had to do it twice more. I was frozen through and through when I got back to the... when I got back to fifth the second time and as I waited for the light to change after the fourth time and he stood just behind me, I became very afraid, afraid that doing all that would not be enough for him, that he would want me to do more and then even more after that and that in the end, I would be shot or simply freeze to death across the street from the number two police precinct. Had, had he told me to deny my mother and father I think I would have done that too. Right. So it's kind of like, um, first of all, you know, it's a, uh, kind of, a, a generic reality that, you know, uh, affects black people. I've, I've often said that when it comes to, you know, a policing and the black community for the vast majority of black men, you know, it's not so much that they will have a high chance of being murdered by a cop, right? Again, you have to be incredibly unlucky in America to be black and murdered by a cop, but you get a lot more of this sort of generic harassment, right? Where yeah. it, 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 it's stuff that will never make it into statistics. Like when, when I think about, you know, uh, uh, knowing different people growing up and the kind of stories they would tell me, there's no way that would ever like when people say, oh, you know, like black people, you know, don't get killed all that much by cops. Like, even if you want to concede that point, how do you capture the fact that incidents like this, you know, is Mm -hmm. stuff that, you know, week after week after week, if you're like a young black kid will happen to you, like stuff like this being shouted at, being patted down, like, like all sorts of kinds of harassment, like every single week you would have a story. Yeah. Yeah. Petty humiliation and embarrassment. Yeah. And emasculation, if you're yeah. a man, you and, know, uh, yeah. and, and fucking Bloomberg made that shit policy, you know, I mean, what was stop and frisk other than like, oh, cops could just kind of do a lower boil version of this whenever they want to anybody they want differentially affecting black people, you know, yeah. I mean, it's. And, and and at the time, you know, the people that were in positions of power didn't even question it because, oh, crime, got to do something about crime, yeah. you know, it's, and, and yeah, and that's why, like, it's not so much that the killing itself is an omnipresent reality of being a black person, it's that it's an unavoidable thought in the back yeah, of exactly. your head, because yeah. there are all, there is all this interstitial dominating behavior on the part yeah. of cops that, that reminds you that like that that could happen to you. Yeah, and you, and you see that here, right? You see that you see yeah. that in this little uh, story, right? He's being kind of walked back in this kind of you know harassing mm-hmm. way back and forth, and he says, you know, I'm expecting to be shot, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's always going to be in the back back of your mind, and you know, like, like I was just going to say, it's interesting that it's not necessary to this particular story necessarily that that yeah. like it's off the beaten path of the narrative, but it's a credit to Jones as an author that he can include that. And it's not like, you know, it's not just, you know, for PC sake, like, oh, this is what happens to black people. Like yeah. it factors into the narrative, you know, this kind of interaction that he has with a white cop is 
part and parcel of the reason that, you know, that he calls jobs for like white people slaves, yeah. you know, because he perceives that fundamentally, no, ma- no matter what is the like superstructural things in place to tell him that he is a full American citizen and equal and blah, blah, blah. He's not. Yeah. You know, he's never uh, in a broader sense going to be treated that way and he can't trust it. Yeah. And, and going back to this idea of like, you know, uh, uh, the slavery that he's undergoing, I mean, uh, b- beyond this kind of like racialized sort of interaction uh, here, uh, I mean, there, there's also kind of like deeper, you know, narrative and metaphorical import. I mean, when he says, um, uh, uh, s- says like, I became very afraid, afraid that doing all that would not be enough for him, that he would want me to do more and then even more after that, right? Uh this could be a stand-in for some of the ways that he might, especially early on in, this, in the story, feel about work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like speaking to, you know, uh, early on, if, if he's kind of like willing to like fuck off, not show up at this job or that job, like sort of like not always do what he's supposed to be doing, you know, maybe in the back of his mind, he's, he, you know, he's been in situations where he wants to say, you know, like, fuck you to his employers, right? He, he, he wants to be able to escape that. And he feels like this, the suppression of, of, you know, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. And part of that, you know, like, like p- part of that fear, you know, uh, uh, that's baked into it, you know, it, it, it's, it's not that it simply comes out of immaturity, right? He, he does grow, he does mature, but you sort of see, you know, like some of the reasoning here, right. And this kind of like more racialized lens, like where there, there's actually things that you could refer back to in reality, right. That, that gives him the, this, uh, this feeling and this, uh, you know, mm-hmm. thought about, about what work is and the kinds of yeah. negatives associated with such. Yeah. So after, all this he he answers a newspaper advertisement for a a clerk job in a grocery store in a different neighborhood than the one that he lives in Mm -hmm. and he meets the i guess like the secondary main character of the book which is penny Mm -hmm. uh the proprietor of uh al's and penny's grocery store i can't remember what the full title is yeah i think it's al al and penny's yeah yeah uh who you know, it, it's a very subtle and fine line that he writes here because she is very close to like the sassy black woman stereotype mm-hmm. at times in the story, you know, but. But she's also really likable, right? Even she, early well, on. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what I think, um, I, that's what kind of undoes it a little bit is the sense that there is a real like almost like universal warmth and love that this woman feels for the neighborhood that she's got this store in. And even for this, you know, young kind of fuck up guy that comes up and gets this job, you know, I mean, she's clearly skeptical of him at first because it's quite clear that she's chewed through a number of like shitty employees in the past that have not been willing to put up with her rather. I mean, I, I, it's hard to scale pay and working hours like from previous areas to the current area but she wants him to work like 72 hours a week for 30 dollars a week at the yeah, start it's, it's like 12 hour days yeah 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 12 hour days six days a week except for sun you know only sundays and occasional holidays off like it's a it's a rather big ask you know and especially considering that she says that the pay is good in the advertisements mm-hmm. too 
you know, which maybe it was for the time period that this was taking place. And I, I, I don't have enough of a sense of, and, and I don't think it's specific. Does it, does it give a date in this story? I can't remember some um, of the stories give dates. I don't know if this one does. Yeah. I don't recall. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how good this pay is, but like she's, she's making a big ask of somebody to come, but at the same time, like it makes sense because this store is like her life. You know, it's something that she co-founded with her husband, who's now dead. Uh, was he the one that died in the Korean War, or there's someone in the, in the story that dies in a in a war off-screen? I can't remember. But anyway, her husband her husband is dead. Kind of this store is all that she has of this like past life and this more hopeful earlier era of her life that maybe she inhabited. And so, if somebody's going to come in and be a part of that. You know, she'd almost rather the store be kind of a shithole than have someone there that's not like really committed to it, mm. you know. So so when he shows up there, like the backyard is overgrown. It's full of squirrels and trash. Mm-hmm. Like you can almost see the the used condoms and shit that are probably sitting out there. Mm-hmm. And she give, she basically tells him, uh, fix this and you can be my employee. And he does. Mm-hmm. And somehow he comes back because the, the the difficulty and rigor of the work, while it is alienating to agree, he also recognizes that, you know, there is a sense of accomplishment on the other side of that. And that this is a person who has like, this is the first boss he's had that he, that has like a soul to yeah. her, you know, that yeah. the, the hard work that she's putting him through is not just to wring a dollar out of him. It's to, test whether he has the metal to be a part of this life that she's built for herself yeah and, and as the story goes on basically you know he, he's getting better and better at the job he's taking on more responsibilities he's increasing his pay he starts uh, uh a relationship with a uh with a woman that is i think her name is kentucky mm-hmm. um, kentucky Connors. yeah so he, so he he's with kentucky and uh, a couple of interesting things happen. Uh, for, for, well, first of all, um, like Kentucky starts like being jealous, like of the store, right? In the sense that like he, he's constantly, you know, he, he's he's constantly over there when he gets like too tired, even though like Kentucky lives like a couple blocks away. Like he's like, you know what? I don't feel like walking all the way over there. I'm going to make myself a pallet in the back of the store and fall asleep there, which to me is just like fucking incredible. I, you know, I can only sleep in my bed. Yeah. But, but, but anyway, it, but it, yeah. it, it nicely, the, the whole thing with Kentucky nicely ties back into the fact that she, she really makes him wait for it when it comes to the sexual aspect of the relationship. I think mm-hmm. they're dating for like a number of months before she lets him fuck her. Yeah. And before the first time they fuck, she pulls him, like she grabs him by the belt and she says, thou shall have no other you know, no one else before me mm-hmm. or something, you know, like, and, and it also ties into the fact that she's like a real, she's real shitty to him. The first time that he asked her out, mm-hmm. you know, she's really uh, kind of a self-absorbed or, or self-confident person, uh, depending mm-hmm. on how, uh, how charitable you want to read her. Uh, and so the fact that she's, uh, you know, sort of putting herself in like godly terms before him, like that's in some ways that's how you know she's not the right person for him you know she's a little bit narcissistic and so when he takes this job at the store very seriously she is not willing to 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 have something in his life be co-equal to her and so she breaks up with him yeah um and you know 
part of that I think does speak to perhaps like, you know, uh, I, I guess you could say that he matures as, as the text goes on, as he becomes a better and better worker, as he you know becomes fixated on on being good at his job here. You know, but uh, on the other hand, you know, like Pe- Penny, like you mentioned this line before, she says that uh, you you should not mix, you know, business and your personal life in this way. You should not be sleeping at the store. You need to clean up and you need to go home. And mm-hmm. he's not really able to do that. And I definitely do get the sense that uh, he might be over fixated on the store, right, to his detriment, oh, yeah. right? So and 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 also to to her detriment and on top of that there's this kind of very quick throwaway line where I'm not sure if you notice it but uh it's an interesting like sort of you know parallel to she, when she says thou shall have no other women before me uh and he says like essentially like it's not even like a full sentence it's like part of a sentence where he says like I, you know, I cheated on her several times, you know, mm-hmm. so he does have sex with other women in the course of this yeah. relationship. But then when she finally like, you know, breaks up with him, he's like, you fucking bitch. Right. So there, there's these like elements of like, he, he's trying to become a well-adjusted, mature human being. The store definitely provides that discipline for him, which is why perhaps he has this kind of overfixation, even if you call it a personal detriment. But then in other ways, you see like other things that are kind of negatives, whether it's like sleeping in the store, not being able to go home or, you know, uh, cheating on this uh, woman that you, you know, you claim to want to be with and that you're even going to also curse out, you know, upon a breakup. Um, So, I mean, there's tons of like uh, dimensions to, to his character. Right. And also like to, to Penny, right? Like later on in, in the story, right? The real kind of turning point is when uh, she accidentally kills a girl uh, in her car, right? Just like someone like jumps out or something. Um, so he, she she kills like a little kid. And then after she kills this kid, uh, she kind of like gives control of the store over to uh, to him because she's not really welcome in the neighborhood, She's not, mm-hmm. um, you know, so so she tries to like not really appear there, but she becomes this kind of like phantom, right? Where um, like ultimately, let me see if I have this uh, uh, quickly. Um, yeah, like, like, like pay, so page 98 for those that might be following uh, along in the paperback. Uh, so like a- after all this happens, right? And she, and she kind of like tries to control the store from the distance, about once a week for the next few years, Penny would call me at Kentucky's and arrange a place and time to meet me. We always met late at night on some fairly deserted street, like secret lovers. And we usually met in some neighborhood in far, far northeast or across the river in Anacostia, parts of the world I wasn't familiar with. I would drive up, park, and go to her car not far away. She wanted to know less about how I was operating the store than what was going on with the people in the neighborhood. She had moved from her apartment southwest, and because I had no way of getting in touch with her, I always came with uh, Boku questions about this or that to be done in the store. She dispensed with all the questions as quickly as possible, and not always to my satisfaction. Then she wanted to know about this one and that one, about so-and-so and whoever. Because it was late at night, I was always tired, not always very talkative. But when 
I began to see how important our meetings were. I find myself learning to set aside some reserve during the day for that night's meeting. And over time, the business of the store became less important in our talks and the business of the people in the neighborhood. And I found that a kind of interesting, understated detail because on the one hand, he's becoming attached to the store as a means of like self-discipline. It's like this like tangible, pragmatic thing that is doing various things for him. And she becomes this kind of like phantom, right? That that hangs onto the neighborhood that she's kind of like essentially excommunicated from. She's, you know, she, she's being ostracized in that sense. So she's asking about the people, perhaps like she's, you know, I don't know if, you know, it may be too pejorative to say that she's gossip, gossiping about this people, about these people, but he has less interest in, the, in these people and more interest in what the store could do for him and his character. She's more interested as a kind of like ghost, essentially, in what's going on in the neighborhood that she's not, you know, allowed to be in anymore. And that also, you know, as the tech, text goes on, that shows you kind of like the ways that he's maturing and the ways perhaps that, you know, this woman that you said, you know, like she's almost kind of the sassy black woman stereotype and essentially just becomes very self-confident like her confidence at this point has been shattered while his confidence is allowed to grow so you know she's kind of like giving him shit at the beginning of the story like you know making fun of him for not necessarily being the best worker or this and that but that changes right so so she she has to regress in some ways and he's allowed to become kind of more fully himself Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a just wonderful dynamic. It's very uh, richly and subtly observed on Jones's part, yeah. and it may, it, you know, maybe it's not a shame that he hasn't written more stuff. You know, maybe he just didn't really make anything that was as good as this. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the um, or maybe he just you know had nothing. I mean, th- there's also like it's 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 hard for us to imagine sometimes. Like we look at people like Dan or whoever that constantly produce, 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 but there are people out there that have some valuable things to say, and then you know maybe like don't have anything else to say. Yeah, well, it's the uh, the first album syndrome in music, you know, where yeah. the first album that you produce is full of stuff that you have been working on for years and years and years touring it, testing it, refining it. And it's sort of the the product of thousands of hours of concerted labor. And then you you have to make a second album and you have to write all of it from scratch, probably, unless you have, you know, a bunch of stuff uh, in the tank that you didn't put on the first album. And that's where if a, if a band is going to falter, that's usually where it is because they just have run out of ideas. You know, they're not... They, they they are not individually creative necessarily. The, the album or whatever that they made is more of like a social product of engagement with the community over the course of years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's this, yeah. you know, maybe he workshopped a lot of this stuff for a long time. I mean, I don't know in what span of time he wrote this book, but maybe a lot of this stuff was kicking around in him since he was a child or a teenager or yeah. something like that. And this is kind of, when he put it all down, I mean, it's telling that the stories stop in the 80s, you know, and this was probably published maybe five to 10 years after the latest point in any of the stories, mm-hmm. you know, and then he, like every, uh, like every black male author had a novel about slavery in him. And then after that, uh, 
you know, it's the, the well, the well runneth dry as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah, very, very. And then the, we should probably say, I mean, we're two and a half hours into this stream and we're not even halfway through the book at this point. Yeah. Uh, so we, but we should probably just sum up and say that the, the story ends first. He hires uh, a woman to work under him. That is uh, not, nice weird uh historical detail like uh like a nation of islam woman i think her name is gloria 5x but her mm-hmm. her pre-islam name was puddin <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh and she, you know he he sort of goes through the same process that penny did actually where he hires a bunch of kind of malcontents and people without a lot of passion for the job and then she actually does have some passion she's got some kids to support so she does a good job and then mm-hmm. ultimately, after he basically gets this place perfect, he puts a fresh coat of orange paint on it. He's got a new meat case. He's put dividers in the produce so that people can buy the bruised produce for a lesser price. He's perfected this thing that he's put all this effort into. And then Penny sells it. Mm-hmm. You know, she tells him, I just, it doesn't make any sense for me to own this anymore. The economics of it don't make sense. I'm not connected to it anymore. It's just a burden on me to have this here's two months of pay for pudding and here is $4,000 for you as severance pay as essentially like the, the business partner in this endeavor. Mm -hmm. And he takes that money and he invests in an education at Georgetown university, which is, you know, know, yeah, he's like 27 when he starts these classes, right. More mature and like able to like deal with this better. Which, which we now know as as people in the year in the year of our Lord 2021 means that he was probably on the road to becoming like a Thomas Sowell type, you know, going to Georgetown University of all places, just this like, you know, psychotic uh, black conservative who's like completely disconnected from his roots. But it's a happy ending to the story. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's... Uh, well, I mean, it, inter- it, internally, I feel like he's probably too mature to ever uh, become a mm-hmm. Thomas uh, Sowell type. It, right. it is. Um, and, and the story ends with him going back to this store that is now, he says it becomes a television repair shop and then something else. I can't remember. It it turns into something completely unrelated from this thing that he spent all of his, you know, these years honing it into being. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is sitting outside of it, imagining himself having lunch in the early days of the store having like a ham hock sandwich and some snowball hostess cupcakes <laughs> every he said every single day he had snowball yeah, every, every day fuck? he had that's like <laughs> you in college with your pop tarts pop yeah that's yeah <laughs> and yeah yeah 220 pounds of fucking college up and down the fucking stairs searching specifically for the brown sugar and cinnamon pop tarts because I do like yeah. the other shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and imagining himself like watching the girls, the he explicitly says that they're high school girls at some point, which is a oh, little, he does. you know, a little, a little unacceptable. Not, not in this part of the story, but in an earlier part of the story, he says mm-hmm. like, Oh, there's a lot of young women and high school girls hanging around the store. And that kind of made it worth my while to hang around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, not as acceptable nowadays to, to say, uh, but, you know, he's, uh, he is con- at this point in his life where he's uh, matriculating into this like 
white world that he once resented this, you know, educated uh, social climbing world that he in some ways seemed to resent Kentucky for being a part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is now entering himself, but he is drawn back to this point in his life where he was just coming out of his sort of loser phase of his life Mm -hmm. and, uh, and struggling to find meaning in this kind of objectively menial job that he could have justifiably walked off of after the first week of doing. Yeah. Yeah. But very, very nice story. You could go even more than any other story in the book. You could probably just go line by line and find little subtleties and nuances and intricacies, but we're two and a half hours into this particular video and we're only four, like four or five stories into this 14 story book so yes it's a lot of uh um yes oh, okay an orange line train to boston is the next story maybe we yeah. shouldn't spend too much time on it. it's kind of short basically it's about a um it's, it's about a, a a single mother marvella watkins who is uh she's she's you know constantly going to and from work taking her kids around to various places the kids i think are you know either you know, like eight, nine, ten, maybe a little bit older, maybe, you know, like somewhere thereabouts. And the, the, the little girl, I think, is like four, though. Yeah. Because she's yeah. Pre, preschool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and um, she, she comes across this uh, uh, man with dreadlocks that she develops this kind of like interest in, this like infatuation over. And I mean, he, you know, he's, you know, the kids sometimes, you know, like try to like, you know, test him a little bit. He responds well, they seem to uh, grow to like him. Um, she seems to be attracted to this like fatherly uh, quality that he shows, uh, attracted to him also for other reasons. She starts like, you know, uh, uh, making her trips up in such a way that she could come across him more often, like take the same trains that he's on, even if this inconveniences uh, herself and her kids. And eventually, you know, um, he just kind of like disappears, right? And she never mm -hmm. sees him again. And this is kind of more or less where we end. I mean, it, it's a nice story. There's like some, uh, like it's a nice little, you know, set of character sketches. Uh, mm -hmm. You yeah, know, but- Jones was Jones was smart because unlike uh young lions and in my opinion the story his mother's house as well mm. uh he kind of understood that this didn't need to be this like extended deep dive narrative into this person's psychology mm. or whatever like that she's not intrinsically that deep of a person what is deep is her encounter mm -hmm. with something outside of herself and the way that she engages with it yeah you know like the i, I mean it's a it, it, you're right this is not one that we need to spend a lot of time on but that's not like a detriment that's not that's not a sign of the story's demerits or or you know lack of fin writerly finesse or anything like that it's just short and we're really long into this video already mm -hmm. but it's a, just a nicely observed uh portrait of a woman who you know probably has like some bad relationships in her past i don't know if she talks about like I don't know if all her kids have the same dad, but seemingly none of the characters in this story with multiple kids have only one dad for all of the kids, you know? So mm -hmm. you could probably sort of fill in contextually that she's probably been with a lot of losers or, you know, maybe just like other characters in the book, lost some people tragically, uh, 
the, in, in some way or another. And she encounters this person that has this kind of exotic elements, you know, dreadlocks were not as common on black people at the time that this story takes place in as they are now. Mm -hmm. uh, and they certainly weren't accepted in, I mean, either not even accepted now, but this is, you know, when people perseverate on the concept of black hair and, you know, things that you theoretically could do to them to make them more manageable, but which are not acceptable in like polite white society. You know, this is the epitome of the era where it was thoroughly not accepted. You know, it was like a, a West Indian or a Jamaican or, uh, or, or, or it, it's, an, it's, it's her encounter with an affectation of blackness that is outside of like what she usually experiences, you know, mm -hmm. but he's put together, he's professional, you know, and it, it says at certain points that he's wearing ties, uh, not with jackets, but, you know, button down shirts. And he, he said, he says that he's, you know, he doesn't get fired because he's so good at his job that they can't afford to fire him, even though they probably would like to, because he just looks so damn black, mm -hmm. you know? And, and she becomes infatuated with it. And then it falls away from her because of course it does. This was like a, a, a fantasy that she sort of uh, interspersed herself into that dissipated away when he probably started taking a different train to work or got a different yeah. job, you know? Yeah. Uh, not, not a lot to, that needs to be said about it, but definitely uh, an easy and quick read and worth your time if you are watching this. I don't know who's yeah. still watching this almost three hours into it, but if you are, definitely worth reading. No, there's definitely people that that watch this all the way through. I could tell in my YouTube analytics that there are plenty yes. of them. Um, well, that's good. And, and, and also just another little detail. I mean, he's a he, he seems to be described in a way that's like pretty, pretty wholesome. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and like his lunch is like, so fucking wholesome, right? He has like a sandwich an apple and a slice of cheese. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way that, uh, people should be yeah. eating. Um, so yeah, yeah definitely, definitely a, a model, right. Which is you know, yes. part, part of the reason why you could uh, expect her, uh, you know, developing this, this infatuation, uh, over him. Um, and anyway, the, so the next story, the Sunday following Mother's Day, uh, I think uh, from what I remember Dan writing about this, uh, he didn't think too much of the story, but I, I, I found just like lots of like little uh, details here that are very interesting. So it, it begins mm -hmm. with um, just like, you know, we have this like senseless like murder, right, of Rhonda Ferguson. Here it begins with uh, a girl, Madeline Williams, and she's she's uh, uh, you know she 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 knows of the fact, right? She comes to know that her father Samuel ends up murdering her mother, just like stabbing her, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the way that it's described is when Madeline Williams was four years old and her brother Sam was ten, their father killed their mother one night in early April. If their mother sent forth to her children a cry of help or of goodbye, they did not hear it, at least not in any conscious level, and they slept clear through to morning. About 6.30 that morning, their father Samuel called his sister Maddie to tell her what he had done and how he had done it. I stabbed her a lot, Samuel said, and though Maddie was still rising up from sleep as he talked, those words were forever imprinted on her mind. 
Uh, so this is never explained. Uh, this is never something that, um, you know, like in some senses, like you don't really need an explanation. Like mm -hmm. uh, in, in the book again and again, right. You just get the sense, like, it's just one of those things. It's just one of those things. It yeah. Well, it more. parallels nicely to the uh, Rhonda Ferguson story as yeah. well, because that's a similar, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, like uh, the one, uh, perhaps a subtle commentary of the book is that this is a thing that keeps happening again and again. You know, these black men that are just like, just like pressure cookers of 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 rage associated with all of the bullshit that they have to deal with, and mm -hmm. they end up taking out taking it out on these women in their lives because they're the only, uh, you know, the only sources of control uh, uh, that they have really with you know misogynistic society that they exist within and and yet people can only read this kind of thing in personal terms mm -hmm. you know they can only read this in terms of like oh you're a bad person you're a monster you did this like not mm -hmm. oh this even though probably they know at least one other person that this shit happened to you know mm -hmm. if they're if they're in, in, in any kind of way connected to the community but they can only you know that's the that's the the, the the sad part of liberal society in a lot of ways is these things that are clearly products of environment and circumstance and not to not to diminish like moral culpability but like you have to like read the moral culpability as like one of a series of factors that go into this kind of thing mm -hmm. and yeah. and clearly based on his behavior in the rest of the book like he instant or in the rest of the story he instantly knew that it was wrong mm -hmm. you know he instantly knew like oh i fucked up i didn't really want to do that and i, I know that i shouldn't have done that but i can't take it back yeah you know Throw, throw the book at me judge yeah and and you know like a, a, as the story unfolds like you definitely get the sense so you know uh samuel he, he's in prison he takes like full responsibility for everything that that happens right he doesn't he, even try to defend himself in court yeah yeah exactly the, the, um, judge, the judge tells his defense attorney like you can't mount a defense for somebody that doesn't want to be defended yeah you know he just uh, more or less admits it and uh, uh, Madeline and I think uh, some other of her relatives, uh, they do, they do visit him in prison, but she kind of stops at some point. Uh, but he continues to write letters, uh, uh to her and perhaps like the family at large. And she's the only one that ever really thinks about them, answers them. You could tell that she, on the one hand, doesn't want to meet him right because she hasn't really forgiven him uh but then on the other hand she has this kind of curiosity about him right he he becomes like a, a poet right he he sends like uh uh her, her poems with these like very kind of you know uh somewhat like generic titles i forget what they are but it's kind of like it's stuff like sunlight through the bars of a cage or something. It's like, you know, like reflections on becoming a grandfather or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like stuff like that. And uh, eventually, though, she starts responding, right? She starts kind of like reciprocating. And um, he, he shows up and he start, He like visits her like one day out of the blue. She's surprised to see him, but she doesn't like, you know, she she doesn't necessarily push him away. And before all that happens, that she does end up having a son uh, with her, I think it's her boyfriend or her husband with a, a man named Curtis. And he, he's, he's born like uh, 
either mentally retarded or has some other kind of like severe disability where against the wishes of like the whole family and perhaps even her friends, uh, she like sends the son off to some kind of like, like state ward, like home, right. Where, um, you know, like it's, it's just for, for people, I guess, that are uh, absolutely unable to live by themselves. They need all this care. In fact, when she, when she visits him, I think it's like every Sunday that she visits him, uh, there, there's no kind of like, like he, he like the, the son offers no indication that he enjoys her presence or that he enjoys like the food or whatever else that she brings to him so like some days she just literally like forgets to bring him anything because she's like well you know what's the point right he's not gonna so like you you get this kind of like odd callousness like in her right on the one hand you don't truly want to blame her because you know, they're, they're like, I guess like, you know, from, from her point of view, there is no actual, you know, uh, uh, thing that he, uh, like extracts from these visits. Like there's no proof that this even matters, I guess, in some kind of like way. But then on the other hand, like you, you do see the callousness, uh, yeah. and, uh, when, when Samuel gets out of prison and he gets this like job as, as a, as a, a dishwasher and cook somewhere, um, he actually comes with her to this place and he's the one that's like doting on her son. Right. Cause he's like a grandfather. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the one that like wheels around her son and even like goes a long way, like away with him. And uh, you, you have this like very interesting dynamic where he becomes like the one that is like loving and careful, possibly because like maybe he feels like he needs to make amends Maybe he really does feel very guilty about everything that transpires. Uh, maybe he 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 does like need need to need to like show show something right. But like the point is like uh, of the two of them, he seems to be by the end of the story an objectively better person. You could say, well, she never murdered anyone and he did. But you know, uh, on some level, this is this is a long time ago, right? He he does not like you said try to defend himself in a court or elsewhere. He comes to terms with his own behavior and he's just trying to integrate into society in a way that's kind of normal. And, and you get the sense that he would probably never do such a thing again. And again, of the two of them, like, he, like he's the one that's taking it upon himself to, you know, show some kind of love towards this kid. Right. And maybe at this point, he's not even like truly a kid anymore. Um, but but th this is what happens when he, when he uh, comes back with this uh, wheelchair and uh, um, uh, Madeline and Maddie like see after like an hour or so, like he's coming back like uh, with, with, with this kid. But, but anyway, like you get these like comments, like Sam began to drool almost immediately. Right. Like so like not really like cognizant of, of so much of what's going on. Um, so like ultimately they put Sam in his wheelchair and as Samuel wheeled the boy up the ramp, Madeline looked her father up and down. Don't you even know how to dress? Can't you see that the tie doesn't go with that suit? If you could call it a suit with those shoes, don't you even know how to match colors? Samuel said nothing. After they had returned Sam to the ward, Madeline waited in the infirmary lobby while her niece's husband drove Samuel to where his car was. In very little time, they return with Samuel driving his own car, right? And she's upset that he took an hour with the boy, right? Like, she's upset that he spent 
more time than she preferred to spend at the ward, despite the fact that this is the first time that he gets to see his grandson, right? Mm -hmm. So you could tell this kind of interaction that she has all this pent up anger and frustration that she can't let go. She can't let go of this past. He has tried to make amends. She cannot. And the way that the story ends is Madeline said nothing more to her Nisa, and she and Samuel drove silently back to Washington. At her apartment, she got out without a, without a word and did not hear Samuel say that he was sorry. She opened the building's front door and made sure it was locked behind her. When she was back in her apartment, she looked out in the window and found that the car had died on him once again. The car was parked in the space near the entrance to the parking lot with its hood up and Samuel was leading into the car, a man being swallowed up. She lived on the second floor facing the parking lot, and she could hear him and he see what he was doing. White people passed and paid no attention to him. He worked late into the afternoon, now and again stopping to try and start the car or to step back and stare at it as if some solution might rise up from the roof and announce itself. The day was completely ruined for Madeline, and throughout the afternoon as her father worked, she sat angry in the chair with its back to the window. That morning, she had looked forward to going to the deli down the street, where she and Curtis sometimes bought sandwiches and pastries. But she knew she could not go out with Samuel blocking the path to the deli, and the deli would soon be closed. There were few cars or people passing, and most of the world was quiet. The loudest sounds were those of her father's muttering and of his tools against the car's metal, all of it reminding her, first before anything else, that the day was forever wearing itself away. I mean, you see, you see such, such like extreme immaturity from her. Like she can't make it to the deli because the father is there, right? She can't possibly like pass him. Like she, she, she cannot deal with her emotions despite the fact that, I mean, look, look, she, she on some level is kind of leading him on, isn't she? She's like, you know, she's like responding to the letters. Mm -hmm. She's sort of like almost like promising like maybe it'll be okay if we cultivate yeah. some kind of relationship. Well, she, she, and he does so. And and instead, like, you know, you, you just see by the end of it, like he's the one that's like more motherly. He's the one that's matured. He's the one that's like not only ready to move on in his life, but also like, you know, like, 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 like love her her son that she seems to not really care too much about yeah uh, it's well it's like he's uh she's very solipsistic yeah in her relationship with her father you know it's she doesn't have any interest in what happened to her family as like an extension of herself and her life mm -hmm. and her brother kind of chastises her for this he he was old enough to have probably stronger memories of their mother and and to really resent him for taking her away from him and he basically tells her what the fuck are you doing like this guy killed our mom how can you continue writing to him and she and she's doing so but she's not doing so out of some like you know jesus christian uh forgiveness or anything like that mm -hmm. she is doing it because you know see she somehow feels like you know, if she understands him and she understands the crime, you know, she bought the, the transcript of the court uh, of the court proceedings for like a hundred dollars or something like that from the state uh, that she can maybe make sense of her life. Uh, but she doesn't seem to really have any affection for her family, her father, even herself to an extent. Uh, 
the 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 brother is kind of and it's maybe a little bit of padding you know to, to the extent that there's weakness in this story i think it's just a little long yeah you know uh but the the brother presents an interesting counterpoint in this story and there's a subtle sly commentary on the sort of uh cumulative degenerative degenerative effects of absentee uh fatherhood in the black mm -hmm. community in this book which it, it i mean it doesn't specifically pin it down on like you know criminological or sociological causes or anything like that but mm -hmm. you have this man named sam who is put in a pressure cooker of social existence basically and kills mm -hmm. his wife for whatever reason and his son who's also named sam who comes to resent him so much that he actually not only depersonalizes to the extent that he refers to himself in the third person mm -hmm. yeah. or no in the third in the first first like you know not by his name yeah but by a plural pronoun for some reason he starts saying we're gonna do this mm -hmm. <laughs> uh at his later date which is just a a funny and kind of believable character detail for someone yeah. in that situation and then her son Sam is this intellectually disabled person who is, you know, basically without passion, without engagement with life, seemingly without memory at all, without anything other than just the most base uh, instincts of like, oh, there's uh, food on a spoon in front of me. I should open my mouth and swallow it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, seemingly without any kind of organic connection to anything outside of himself. So there's a, a a nice uh interwoven commentary on the way that like the 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 penal system uh has affect, uh, affected black communities over time and and how they're like cascading effects of it that are not just you know it's, you know Daniel Patrick Moynihan talking about app, you know single black mothers or something like that but that it sort of subtly imprints itself psychologically over time uh, uh, on people that are part of these communities yeah yeah um it's a good story a little over long but uh, yeah. if it's not great it's it's near grace which is excellent you know yeah it's i mean there's definitely a a, a lot there um the next one is a, is the title <laughs> story uh lost in the city um I mean, I don't have too too much to to say about it. I mean, it's this thing where, uh, I mean, like so uh, the um, so so her name actually is Lydia, right? She's called Cynthia by the initial like lover in the in the story, right? She's like her, she's interrupted by a a uh, phone call uh, on the other end. There's the um, there's the hospital staff and they're telling her that your mother has died, you know, please come. She wakes up uh, this guy like in her like attempt to get ready. Uh, he calls her uh, uh, Cynthia when in fact her name is Lydia. She doesn't even bother to correct him. She like pulls out Coke, starts doing, she says, J just one little line of Coke, right? And then she ends up doing more and more Coke as the story goes on and ends up just kind of like driving around uh, the city um in this taxi cab and she has lots of money she puts like 60 dollars down and says you know just get us lost right just drive and drive and drive and drive um before she finally makes it uh to the hospital uh it, you know it's not you know th this isn't a bad story or anything but it, it just reminded me a lot of like growing up like you listen to like you know 
music, for example, ostensibly like about drugs or whatever, or like, you know, there's yeah. like, you know, there's like the, uh, um, the, the, there's like all the kind of like writers that you read growing up that, that talk about like being high or whatever. And they often try to like invoke the feeling of being high within the text itself. And it's always like this, like extreme slippery slope, because I mean, essentially, uh, you know, you, you have this like significant risk of making the narrative itself and the details themselves very kind of meandering, right? As you try to capture like what a, what a, you know, drugged out haze is like. And uh, th this, this story avoids the worst of that. Um, but it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, uh, it, it's not that it doesn't say anything. It, it does have this nice kind of like beginning to ending where it sort of ends with kind of like this, you know, imagination backwards, like a memory of like her, her mother, uh, telling her, her something that, that comes to be a bit symbolic for her. Um, but it, it is kind of like, you know, it is kind of like scattershot in some ways. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good story. Um, I don't, if. If I was Edward P. Jones writing it, I don't know that I would give it the title of the short story collection because I don't think it quite holds up the weight of that as well as it could. Yeah. Um, although he saves it because it's also a line in the first story of the collection, which is much stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right that it sort of flirts with the worst of the like drug prose that has existed. You know, it it almost falls into that. I think the reason that it avoids it is more contextual than artistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that that's not artistic, but it's not, it's not necessarily specific to the prose. It's the fact that instead of some, you know, white hipster, like a Hunter S. Thompson or a William S. Burroughs mm -hmm. or someone like that, it is this uh, black woman who is now rich, but quite clearly grew up like, you know, poor to middle class or something like mm -hmm. that. And she is, falling back into this past that she has that she feels like she has left behind but now that her mother her perhaps last organic connection to that past has has fallen away she can't help but mm -hmm. want to try to reclaim it for herself so to the extent that it is saved from the you know the the annoyingness of drug prose mm -hmm. you know it's it's because it's a different kind of character than you usually see doing this yeah. And because the character is in a situation where it's not in any way whatsoever glorifying the drugs mm -hmm. or trying to make it seem cool or interesting. Like, if anything, the the drug-inflected aspect of it is artistically strong, but makes it perhaps, like, the least pleasant story in the collection to read because it is, like, meandering and it sort of gets... it Like, it's the most solipsistic story on the part of the character that is yeah. narrating or, or or that it is centered around of the stories and i don't think that's an artistic merit but in, in terms of personal enjoyment and also in terms of re-readability and depth i would say it is sort of like stunted in a way the rest of the stories in the collection are not i i would put this down there with uh young lions as like one of the weaker stories in the collection but that's not that's not to say it's not good it's just you know, it, if every story was this quality, we wouldn't be doing a video about it. Yeah. Um, and also, like, I mean, speaking to some of the artistry, like some of the self-talk that she's experiencing, right? I mean, it's it's well-crafted, right? So as she's getting ready to leave the house to go to the, the hospital, uh, in the shower, Lydia held her face 
uh, as close as she could to the nozzle. After she had finished, she soaked herself again. Best get his smell off of me, she said to the water. Or else when I walk in there, they'll know I've been fucking. The nurses and doctors will look at me and they'll say, why, Mrs. Walsh, your mother lies moldering and you've been fucking. I mean, it's just kind of funny, right? Uh, Forgive me, father, for I have been fucking, she said to the mirror. She toweled off. The exhaust fan made a low humming sound, barely audible, even in the quiet of the night. But though the repair people had been there four times, it was still too loud for her. No sound, she said to the second repairman. Absolutely no sound whatsoever. Can you manage that? And so you get in the one hand, it's kind of like, like she knows that she's kind of like fucked up in many ways. Um, You know, to your point, like there is no kind of celebration of her kind of cocaine habit. And then you get this kind of like uh, uh, ending here where, you know, she's like so self-obsessed no sound right she's talking to some like blue collar type absolutely no sound whatsoever can you manage that as if like you can't fucking handle an exhaust fed right it's just so mm-hmm. you know it's kind of extreme in some ways um yeah yeah um uh, the next story is called his mother's house yeah uh it's another story about i guess kind of the the criminal underbelly of Washington D.C. This time, told from a from a perspective of a character who seems to be more of a Manny than a Caesar. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who has kind of some clout and some 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 wealth and infamy within the the, the community of of criminals. Mm-hmm. To the extent that his mother's lover Ricky has like fallen into his entourage as like his driver mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and I, 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 th- I think that's probably the, the best part of the story where you mm-hmm. have like a very gradual unfolding of all of that, right? Where yeah. you're wondering why is this like kid speaking so casually and rudely to this like much older man, right? Especially in the setting of like, you know, being, you know, uh, probably in the 90s or 80s, uh, perhaps even 70s or whatever, you know, uh, that's not really an interaction that you'd normally have, like in the black community. And yet mm-hmm. this is this is what's going on. And very slowly, you know, all this stuff get gets revealed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when, you know, the character gets more or less revealed, uh, some of the other stuff, like the the the, the uh, drug addict character, I forget his name, that shows up. Um, well, when he shows up, and you know that he's like been using the drugs he's supposed to be selling, and he owes, you know, um, he, he owes this. Uh, what is what is this, this guy? Oh, Santiago. He owes Santiago money. You sort of know like exactly where this is going, right? Um, and you know ultimately like the the probably like the worst ending i think of all the stories here where you know santiago who was supposed to be a competent uh, criminal or rather competent enough that he's literally able to buy this mansion for his mother and have like multiple employees or whatever he just like shoots this guy that owes him money uh in front of like a dozen plus people you know, in the middle of the middle of the street, middle of the day, like not caring, like it's just, you know, it's not something mm-hmm. that makes any, any kind of 
uh, sense if you're if you're talking about any sort of realism here with someone that has sort of gotten high enough, right, in this kind mm-hmm. of criminal enterprise, right? I could imagine like some you know complete like fucking like nobody maybe doing something like this. Yeah, and, some you know some tweaker loser who fell into it, yeah. like doing stupid like that. But he wouldn't have gotten to this point if he was. Yeah, you know, capping people in front of uh, you know, a big crowd of witnesses. Yeah, yeah, um, it's it's probably the yeah, it's it, it, like like the young lions and uh, lost in the city. It's probably on in lower echelon of tales mm-hmm. in the book. Um, I might even actually, I think I said young lions, but young lions is first of all shorter than this one. Yeah, uh, and. It has, has, has a better has a better ending for one, right? It, it has a little better of an ending, and the the subplot of uh, of for some reason becoming obsessed with the idea of ripping off an intellectually disabled woman is like a little different than something you would see in like a typical crime story or something like that. You know, yeah. this it, it feels a little more rooted in maybe because it's a lower level criminal, and so Jones can kind of. Uh, empathize with and intuit something about that side of crime where he's like someone who's higher up on the chain is a little more divorced from his own experience and he has to fill in the gaps uh, in in ways that I that I think fall short I mean it's again it's not a bad story in fact it's compared to most of what gets published I'd say it's a very good story yeah you know but you know relatively speaking it's probably the one that needs to be reread the least uh, mm-hmm. actually the detail when i was rereading it that was the the one that stuck out to me the most uh is the beginning of the story where despite this nice house that he's gotten for his mother she is like really attached to this shitty coffee table mm-hmm. that she puts pictures in yeah. you know sort of the um uh be you know be sort of retaining something of her of her previous life uh, before her son became a criminal or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and the detail that, it, it, as I recall, I think like Ricky kind of wants to have a kid with her, mm-hmm. but she is like either infertile or she's taking birth control or something like that. And this sort of subtle- yeah, I, th- I think she had some kind of a, she, she had a surgery, right? And she never- Yeah, re- some, some, or she had her teeth tied or something. She's yeah. like, she she's leading him it. on about the possibility yeah. of having a kid with him. And it's 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 kind of implied that like whatever she lets her son give him, she recognizes on an intuitive level that he's like kind of a monster and a scumbag. Yeah. And she and doesn't want to like perhaps reproduce like another child like this, right? Like that's also mm-hmm. a possibility. Yeah. That, that's what I was thinking because it's never actually explained why she is leading on uh, Ricky, right, uh, about this, right? And pretending like, oh yeah, we could get pregnant. Let's just continue trying. Right. So that, 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 that's one of the possibilities. And also like, um, the, the, the one person that really confronts her about this is her mother. Right. And she's like, I don't want any of Santiago's money. I don't want this. I don't want that. You know, uh, if he ever comes here, I'm going to call the cops on him. Right. So she, you know, she essentially wants nothing to do with her grandchild. And, um, like she, she's kind of going through the story, like uh, on the one hand, like, like denying what's obvious which is you know her son is a piece of shit and then on the other hand like clearly knowing that and just kind of you know sweeping it under the rug right she's like Mm -hmm. full of all these like you know understatements even when he like shoots you know um uh 
did, like does did, did she does she end up like slapping him or something or does she never take it that far i this one i must admit i is one of the oh, ones yeah she, she does slap him yeah so so she does she does slap him right but even after she slaps him she was like uh you know like she she didn't want to think about her child uh, in this cruel world without a place to come to. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, not, not, not a very good ending, but still like, I, I think a good like character buildup. It's just that, like you, you mentioned how in young lions are said, like intellectually disabled woman that, uh, appears, right. That, uh, uh, Caesar wants to exploit somehow. And when she first appears knowing that, you know, Caesar is a murderer, uh, or like a would be murderer, um, like there's this kind of tension immediately where you're like oh shit is he gonna try to like murder this like intellectually like like disabled woman like that's just kind of you know trying to live her life uh uh or you know or something else gonna happen and there's that tension throughout here you know kind of right away that when this guy's been like picking into like his drugs and all that you know that he's gonna get killed at some point right especially as the tension escalates and the fact that it happens in the way that it happens, you know, like the, the yeah. ending just really kind of tanks. Well, there, there's a, there's a, a, a tension and a strangeness to young lions that I think sort of propels it a little higher. Like with that whole subplot, the, the fact that, I mean, this is clearly a, a super scummy thing he's doing, like trying to get like a couple hundred or thousand dollars out of this uh, intellectually disabled woman with this lie mm-hmm. and yet if you did that same thing and you called it a charity or a corporation you know nobody would would bat an eye at it you know mm-hmm. there's the, there's like uh i don't know there's there's a sense of the uncanny in mm-hmm. young lions that is that is lacking in his mother's house which is yeah. the most generic uh tale in the book yeah so i i don't have a lot else to say about that with you yeah we, we could uh we could move on yeah expedite uh next one uh is another one of it, the book sort of has a um uh like a long tail short tail kind mm-hmm. of structure not not perfectly but uh the next one is a much shorter piece called a butterfly on f street which yeah. to the, the elevator pitch summary would be a woman uh has an encounter on the street with the woman that her husband left her for and spent the last couple cancer ridden years of his life with. Yeah. Um, and and there's, there's actually not too much, uh, else that happens here, but like, I think one of the more interesting inversions in the story is, you know, she, she sees her and, you know, she's immediately kind of like caught off guard and kind of like resentful, kind of like, you know, she she feels like she doesn't want to be intruded upon by by this woman um you know essentially like you know his mistress but as you know as uh uh, uh so like Mildred Harper is, is the name of the woman that is left by the husband when she comes across the mistress the mistress starts to like really you know she she she's being kind right she's being understanding and ultimately like it's kind of like kind and understanding enough that Mildred feels that she's the one meaning Mildred is the one that's interfering with the mistress now like she's interfering with her grief you know that that she's kind of like this interloper 
right? Mm -hmm. Which is, a, we, it's like a nice little kind of inversion, but it's also mm -hmm. just like a very kind of small tail, right? Not, not, yeah. not too much happens. Not, not much else. I don't think that you could really talk about at any rate. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's an excellent story. It's just kind of hard to talk about because yeah. it's really, it's dialogue heavy. There's a lot of like subtleties and intricacies to the dialogue mm -hmm. that you don't really come across as well in like an abstract discussion of it. So yeah, uh, worth reading, but probably I, I must admit the, the next couple also escaped me a little bit gospel. Yeah, is, I have. What's this one I, even about? I don't remember this one. Yeah, gospels. Uh, I I think gospel. Uh, it's going to be in a similar category to some of those uh, kind of like lesser stories as well. Um, so like Vivian is the uh, main character. She also has a. Uh, uh, oh, this is the one about the church choir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the church no, choir. Pretty, yeah. No, this one's pretty good actually. I, I I've I've completely completely blanked on it until you said that. Now I remember. Oh really? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, basically, my 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 criticism of this story is that um, I mean, so, so like as as far as the the things about it that are interesting is so like Vivian has his husband that that's also dying uh, of cancer, um, and uh, she's she seems to be like kind of resentful of him and also resentful of the fact that whenever he goes into treatment. You know, he's the one that looks like so energetic and strong, right? And 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 she looks like the one that's sick, right? When it's in fact the other way around. Um, and you you do find this kind of like dynamic between Vivian and the other church ladies, right? They're they're these gospel singers um that, that do this professionally, and they go from from church to church where they have like tons of like competition with one another right uh, not only like between each other like as gospel singers but also like other gospel groups they're constantly sort of like gossiping the, about, the, 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 the rival gospel group is yeah such yeah a funny addition to the tale yeah yeah, yeah. And, and they're they're always like, like the, gossiping like, about the tale them. follows the second string gospel choir yeah in washington dc yeah yeah um yeah, there, there's like tons of like little bits of gossip, like, and they're supposed to be like, you know, like women of Christ, but you see them like engaging like all sorts of like hypocrisies and like bits of like, uh, you know, like, uh, 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 like, I guess, you know, like various kinds of like uh, sinfulness. Um, I think the most kind of telling one is in the end, like it's like Vivian and Diane, right? They seem to be like pretty close friends and Diane seems to be cheating on either she has a boyfriend or a husband. I don't remember. Uh, Diane is uh, cheating on him with like this, this guy, right. That is like waiting for her in this car. She meets him in this car. She kisses him and Vivian sees this and she gets like very upset. Like you're not supposed to be doing this so on and so forth. Um, but part of the reason why she gets upset like i think this is like in terms of like of what is of psychological interest in the story is uh like like building upon some of the more gossipy elements of the story right you, you see some of the psychology borne out in that way uh you also get this kind of like sense where the reason why she's so upset uh at at um uh diane isn't the fact that diane's like this this new boyfriend or whatever He's like very much a gentleman, right? But the way that she views his gentleman qualities is, oh, he took off her hat. He took off his hat, right? When they met, right? This is like the, the thing that she focuses on. And she's like, 
God, like I, I, I wish that there would be some man around today that would take off his hat for me. Right. He, he, so just like we have like in, in the night, uh, uh, Rhonda Ferguson was killed. Cassandra really kind of like loses her shit at the fact that after being, you know, rejected by this guy because of her kind of like crazy behavior, um, she starts like taking it out on these women. Uh, she's kind of like doing the same thing because here is this kind of like, you know, like apex male kind of like in her, in her kind of like infatuated mind. And yet the thing is like, he's engaged in the same kind of sinfulness that she's like berating Diane over. Right. It's like, it's, he's not actually a gentleman, right? He has like all the trappings of being a gentleman. He's going to be willing to like raise his hat to you but he's still going to fucking help you cheat on your husband. Right. So he's not actually a gentleman. Um, so anyway, like th those are the elements that I found uh, of sufficient interest to comment, comment upon. Yeah, no, I guess the, the, the general thrust of the story you could say is the idea of this kind of beautiful or nice thing that you've built for herself, for yourself. And yet there's all these forces that are, pressing on it at all times that threaten to tear it apart, whether it's cancer in your marriage or the sinfulness of infidelity or the young, talented one in their church choir that the, that the rival church choir is constantly trying to poach from them and to like completely destroy any interest that anybody mm -hmm. would have in their, in their shitty little church choir. Yeah. Um, and sort of the, the hypocrisies and, self-compromises that that are inherent in trying to be a good person in a not so good world you yeah. know it's it, i mean it's like any tale in the book it is uh good to good to excellent in a moment-to-moment -moment sense but less substantive talking about it in the uh in in this kind of a forum yeah yeah uh what's the next one um, a new, a new man, a new man is a very, it's a very interesting story. Um, very Pretty short, isn't it? As I recall, relatively uh, compared to some of them. Yeah, not, not definitely not that long. Let me, let me see if there's like a, if I get page count, it's about, it's about like 20 pages or so, maybe a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, maybe more like, uh, like 13, 12, something like that. Uh, and so, I mean, basically it's, it's about a man who, um, uh, so Wood Woodrow Cunningham, uh, basically he he has heart troubles. Uh, he catches his daughter one day home early from school. Maybe it's like a half day of some sort. Maybe he comes home early, um, and she's just like with two boys in the in the apartment that they live in, and uh, she's like smoking cigarettes with them. Maybe like they're going to have sex. Maybe not. I mean, who who knows? You get the sense that she she's not as bad of a girl, right? Uh, as uh, she in fact is in her father's mind. In fact, like when when uh, um, uh, Woodrow starts like criticizing her, uh, you you definitely get the sense that she's been through this before. She's she's sort of scared of him, I guess. So like you know, he physically uh, hits her uh, when you know she's kind of like out of line, but she seems to be like growing up now and becoming like less responsive to this she tries to be let's call it reasonable about stuff and um she's uh uh like she, she, she like basically she she runs runs away right she runs away when um 
I guess she doesn't want to live there anymore. And I think part of that, honestly, like it, it's kind of like not, it's not explicitly stated, but it does seem that Woodrow is kind of hard on uh, his daughter. And there's even like the, this line there, it's like very nice where he sort of, uh, uh, he starts kind of like shouting at her. And the line is, he uh, uh, realized that he was simply parroting himself, right? This kind of like image of himself and this kind of like ideal platonic form of the stern father that will control the daughter and keep her from going astray. But mm -hmm. it has become so, so like automatic at this point, so kind of pointless. And she says at some point, like, you know what? Like, no matter what I'll do, I will still get this kind of treatment. So she just one day up and disappears after this interaction. And uh, he and his wife end up going um, on this kind of, you know, search, right, for, for their daughter. And little by little, you know, uh, it's clear that they're not going to get her back. She's not coming back. No one knows where she is. They, you know, eventually file a, a missing person report. She's never found. And then little by little, they start to forget her and they start to forget um, all the, uh, you know, like the, the fact that, you know, she's essentially lost, right? And and they don't really talk about this anymore. And th th this starts to become this like weird kind of situation where her mother keeps asking Woodrow about the story, right? Like, t like, tell me, tell me what you saw when the boys were here. What was the daughter's name is Elaine? What was Elaine doing? What was she, what was she uh, up to? Mm -hmm. um, and eventually, uh, eventually this starts to take on this kind of like nightly ritual almost. And this is, this is how uh, it gets characterized. So Rita's name of the wife. What happened, Rita would ask as they prepared for bed. What he told her and her listening replaced everything they had ever done in that bed. Discussing what future they wanted for Elaine, lovemaking, sharing what the world had done to them that workday. What happened? It was just about the only thing she ever asked Woodrow as the months grew colder. What happened? What'd she say to her? By late February, when fewer and fewer people were going out to search, he had told the whole story. But then he began to tell her things that had not happened. There were three boys, he said at one point, for example. Or he could see a gun sticking out of the jacket pocket of the light-skinned one, and he could see the outline of a knife in the back pants pocket of the third. Or he would say that the record player was playing so loudly he could hear her from the street. They were small embellishments at first, and if his wife noticed that the story of what happened was changing, she said nothing. In time, with winter disappearing, he was adding more and more so that it was no longer a falseness here and there that was embedded in the whole of the truth, but the truth itself, an ever-diminishing kernel that was contained in the whole of falseness. And like some kind of bedtime story, she listened and drifted with his words into a sleep where the things he was telling her were sometimes happening. Um, I mean, I got more to say, but I've been talking a lot about this already. Maybe uh, you got some input on the story. No, it's a it's it's a really excellent story. Um, the The ending is really nice too. Where the, throughout, as I recall, throughout the first part of the story, you get these like letters from his like sickly elderly father. Like, yeah, I, I, I want to read one of these letters later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah off like 
offering to come and help him find his daughter. But -hmm. then you find out at the end of the story, like to the extent that, I mean, assuming that probably the likeliest thing is that she ran away and just went somewhere where he could never find her. Yeah. Uh, You know, the roots of this are themselves in the, the sort of weird parenting style of his father. Yeah. Where, he had a system where the child that worked the hardest got to sit the closest to him at the dinner table every night. And so uh, Woodrow, for whatever reason, really, really desired his father's love and approval. I mean, I guess we all do, but he wanted it more than any of his siblings. And he essentially brown nosed his way into being his father's right hand man. But you can imagine how that sort of uh, conditional nature of love in that relationship and inflecting the way that he dealt with his daughter to the point where she understood like oh you don't you only love me if i behave a certain way you don't like if i get naughty with some boys or something like that your love for me goes away or it diminishes this isn't really what i want out of life it's not really anything that's fulfilling for me i'm getting the fuck out of here mm-hmm. and it's 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 a it's a nice story especially some of the descriptions of their their loneliness and lostness as the the dawning reality of the fact that their daughter is not coming yeah. back kind of blossoms yeah. you know very very memorable prose yeah um and and like you know the it seems like the father also is kind of he seems to be like either maybe like slowly losing his mind uh so uh this is um this is how these letters get characterized by March Woodrow had written countless letters to his father telling the old man it was not necessary to come to Washington to help look for the girl I got a sign from God the old man kept writing that I could help find her then with spring he began writing that he had received signs that he was not long for the world that finding the girl was the last thing God wanted him to do In the longest letters the old man had ever written to the one child of his who responded, he would go on and on about the signs he saw signaling his own death. The mongrel would no longer take food from his hand. The dead visited him at night, sitting down on the side of his bed and telling him things about himself. The rising sun now touched his house last in the morning, though there were houses to the left and right of his. You keep telling me that I'll be hurt or lost, the old man wrote Woodrow. But I know the way that Washington, D.C. is set up. I came there once, maybe twice. How could I get lost? Take a chance on me, and we'll have that child back home before you can blink one eye. I can bring Sparky. He got some bloodhound in him. (laughs) I I just found that to be such 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 a beautiful little detail because... You know, uh, the father, maybe he was a tyrant at some point in his life, but now all his kids have deserted him. The one kid, Woodrow, uh, is kind of like still in his life a little bit. And um, maybe he was a tyrant once, but at this point in his life, he's just, you know, he's lost all his powers, right? He's reduced to saying things like, you know, I'll bring my own kind of like, you know, uh, old dog, essentially. He's got a bloodhound in him, just being completely sort of useless, paralleling, interestingly enough, this growing recognition on the part of Woodrow that he himself has like lost his powers. He cannot bring back his daughter. 
And the way that, that you know, both uh, Rita, his wife, and uh, him respond to the loss, like, they, they kind of, like, take this, like, interesting kind of, you know, opposite approach, right, where um, Woodrow loses a ton of weight, and Rita gets very fat. So, and this is, this is the, the way that um, it gets uh, uh, characterized. Rita and Woodrow were back in the apartment on Independence Avenue in Southeast by 10 o'clock that night. Rita took her usual place at an easy chair near the window. On a table beside the chair was all she needed. The television guide, snacks, the telephone, the chair was very large and had had to be specially ordered because she could not fit into the regular ones in the store. Woodrow, even though the hour was late and the weather uh, people were predicting even colder temperatures, quietly put on his heaviest coat and left the apartment. He said nothing to Rita, and she did not look up when the door locked behind him. At the corner of Independence and 15th, Woodrow looked into the grocery store window at the owner he had become friends with since moving to Southeast. No customers went into the store, and the owner was dozing behind the counter, his head back, his mouth open. Woodrow watched him for a very long time. By now, he knew everything about the man and his store and the sons who helped the man, and there was no urgency to be inside with him. Having lost so much weight, Woodrow felt that even more of the world had opened up to him. And so he wondered if he should go on down to 15th Street, try to find a house he had not visited before, and bring out the picture of the child in her Easter dress. And this is how it ends. I mean, you know, very uh, a nice ending, very like just like psychologically uh, rich and complex. The fact that, you know, Rita doesn't even like notice him leaving the house. It's just this ritual that they do. You know, uh, he's losing weight. She's getting fat. She's watching television, eating snacks next to the phone, next to the television. He's just kind of like, you know, running around, searching, searching, right? Um, and kind of like becoming like his old uh, uh, father, right? Who at this point has already died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really great story. Uh, I wish I, I I wish that it was earlier in the book so that we maybe had slightly more time to talk about it. Yeah, but uh, uh, we should because the the last story is a, a lot, so we should probably save yeah. some time for that. The second to last story, the penultimate story, uh, is a dark night, which I think you said you don't have as much of a memory of or as much to say about. I actually just read this reread this one today, so. I'm really bad with the fucking character names in this book. Do you have those written, the, the character names written down anywhere? Or? Um, uh, no. Uh. Anyway, th that's, that's not super important. So it's essentially about a, uh, like a group prayer session mm -hmm. that is put together by uh, some, some women at a church. They've got a bunch of snacks and drinks. I think there's like fruit punch and a cake. And they have invited the local priest over to sort of lead them in a in, in a prayer circle, uh, and they have invited this cranky old ninety one year old woman uh, to be a part of this, who used to be good friends with the uh, main character Beatrice, uh, Be Beatrice, the main character of the story. Uh, but they have at some point had a falling out, which is not 
the, the story smartly doesn't go into like super explicit detail about what's caused them to fall out. It's just sort mm-hmm. of implied that this older woman, uh, Mrs. Garrett, she sort of got older and crankier and more toxic over time. And I, I remember this a little bit. And when she suddenly yeah. like shows up, like it's uh, it's a it's a very kind of interesting little dynamic that well, develops. Yeah, and where... she's talking shit about the priest. Yeah. Uh, she says, "What time was the priest supposed to come?" And they say three thirty. And she says, "Well, every clock in the world says that it's after four o'clock now." Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, yeah. I, Mrs. Garrett was one of my favorite characters in the book, mm-hmm. even though she's kind of a slight character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, basically, the priest never shows up. Uh, he calls like three hours later and says, oh, my car wouldn't start. I can't get there. Sorry. Uh, and so they decide to just eat all of the food that they brought and gossip. And it's raining outside. And they ask Beatrice to tell the story about the darkest night, which is like a half story, half joke. Uh, or no, another character tells the story, which the the title of the of the story comes from an, an in-joke that one of these characters in this prayer group tells where I guess her grandfather had a joke about one night. It was so dark that there came a knock at the door and there was a bunch of raindrops outside that said, excuse me, can you tell me which way is the ground? Mm-hmm. Which is pretty funny. You know, it's a mm-hmm. charming little joke, but I, the kids find it very, very funny. And then Beatrice tells this story of, how when she was younger, like 16, 17, she was at her parents' farm with like a young guy that she was dating. And a cousin of hers like emerges from the cornfield completely bewildered, disheveled, disoriented. And they and he runs away back to his house and they follow him. And they realize that this house full of people, everybody except for the baby is dead because the Mm -hmm. house was like struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was like, like the exact cause of death in this instance is a little obscure to me unless everything in the house was conductive for some reason. I think maybe it was like the the lightning hit the chimney and started a fire and they all perished from smoke inhalation, something Mm -hmm. along those lines. Uh, it's It's a little obscure, but the thrust of the story is that she has seen this you know, horrific thing that happened as a result of a lightning storm. The The prayer group breaks up. Uh, it's late at night. The storm is getting worse and worse. The old woman, Mrs. Garrett, is sitting there and she basically has like a vision of death coming from for her as a result of the storm. So mm-hmm. she goes to Beatrice's house and says, I'm so scared. Can I hang out with you for a while? And Beatrice says, no, we're not friends anymore, you old bitch. Like, what are you talking about? And, but she takes pity on her and she lets her come in. And the story has, I actually think maybe the nicest, the, the, maybe the best ending of any of the stories in the book. It's a really, really great closing line and paragraph. Uh, uh, So Mrs. Garrett says, how long do you think it might last be? How long? Why do you always ask me such stupid goddamn questions? The blanket did nothing to moderate the violence of the thunder, and it continued to sound as if it were outside the door. Ain't you going to blow out the candle, Mrs. Garrett said. 
Beatrice leaned over in blue lightly, and in the quickest of moments, the room was engulfed in darkness. Mrs. Garrett began to pray, a long, monotonous mumble of words. Once or twice, a boom would produce a small yelp of surprise from each woman, but they did not comfort one another. Over time, the intensity of the thunder grew until it was like a pounding at the bathroom door. And each time it pounded, the woman would look toward the door as if they were making up their minds whether to get up and answer it. Yeah. Really, uh, really great closing line to the story. One of the strongest of the book. The, the tale itself, I would say, is rather slight. It's kind of a nice little slice of life story about these, you know, these two people that are at different points of their life uh, brought together over like a shared troubling at a rather bad storm. What mm-hmm. one because of the way that it correlates to her past, the other because she has reached a point in her life where death is pretty much a constant worry. Which, if you're a nurse, you know, someone in their 90s, there is never a moment where uh, death is not constant. We we have an algorithm that tells us whether we need to pay special attention to patients, uh, whether they are at increased risk of deterioration in the next eight hours, and it you know, it averages their age and their health history and their vital signs and their lab results. And anybody over 90, like you better hope they don't fucking sneeze or it's going to be more work for you because you're going to have to get vital signs very frequently on mm-hmm. this person because just the the risk of death so much higher. So I, I don't have a lot to say about it. I think it's a good story worth reading. Great last line, uh, but, you know, just a nice, uh, a slight little slice of life. Yeah, I mean, some of it uh, came, it's been like about a month since I uh, read this story, which is why I don't have uh, too much to say. Um, Because originally we planned on doing this like a month ago. Um, And I I actually reread most of this this morning, but uh, didn't didn't get a chance to go over this one. Um, So, I mean, let's just tackle the last one, uh, Marie, which uh, it's, it's definitely one of the best, like, you know, like like flat out like one of the best stories uh in this mm-hmm. collection uh for for many different reasons and uh i mean let's just let's just see the way that it starts right there's there, there's so much here right from the very beginning um every now and again as if on a whim the federal government people would write to marie delavue wilson in one of those white stampless envelopes and tell her to come into their place so they could take another look at her. They, the social security people, wrote to her in a foreign language and she had learned to translate over the years. And for all the years she had been receiving the letters, the same man had been signing them. Once, because she had something important to tell him, Marie called the number the man always put at the top of the letters. But a woman answered Mr. Smith's telephone and told Marie that he was in an all-day meeting. Another time she called and a man said Mr. Smith was on vacation. And finally, one day a woman answered and told Marie that Mr. Smith was deceased. The woman told her to wait and she would get someone new to talk to her about her case. But Marie thought it bad luck to have telephoned a dead man and she hung up. Um, and... Uh, I mean, this this is like exactly like speaking of like uh, er, uh, earlier when we were discussing uh, the first day from like a child's point of view. This is definitely, you know, a, a really good, you know, set of insights into an old woman's point of view. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, having had, you know, a great grandmother, a grandmother, like, uh, like a, a little detail, like once because she had something important to tell him. Marie called the number the man always put at top of the letters. You know, so many grandmothers all the time kind of inflate the stakes of like the importance of something they have to say, right? And I, uh, yes, you they know, do. And, you know, like, especially with like with Russian uh, uh, grandmas and like grandma adjacent types, um, you know, and, and like like little things like uh, uh, she's superstitious about the bad luck. And this gets kind of like, you know, uh, like smashed into this like a wider idea of perhaps people at the government office at the Social Security office are going to you know, uh, keep me from getting my checks, you know, maybe they're going to get uh, upset at me in some way. Um, you know, the, 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 this starts to like, you know, uh, c- come to the fore, like very quickly as the story goes on. And this, this is ultimately, we should say it is about that, right? Marie, mm-hmm. who is concerned about her future, uh, I think it's like social security, yeah, social security payments, right? Um, yeah. So, well, yeah. So, so, so she, uh, what happens is she has to go to these like regular check-ins to make, I think basically to make sure that she's still, still alive and that they're not sending the checks out to her family or something yeah. like that. Um, she goes to one and they keep her there for several hours. And then they say, Oh, actually the person you need to see is not in today. I thought yeah. they were sorry. Yeah. And then she very annoyed by this and the next time that she comes she comes at like eight in the morning and then at like one o'clock in the afternoon she still has not seen anybody mm-hmm. uh again this sort of you know inherent uh alienation and distrust of bureaucracy kind of rears its head and the way it tears people apart from normal human interactions that they might otherwise have mm-hmm. and this secretary is like completely ignoring her and acting annoyed every time she goes like Am I going to see anybody today? I've been here for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the secretary is chatting with another secretary about bullshit, just gossiping. Mm-hmm. And she goes up and says, when am I going to see someone? She's like, you'll see someone when you see someone. And she slaps the secretary. Yeah. And she gets carted out by security. Yeah. <laughs> and then she spends the rest of the story in like abject fear that that means she's never going to get a social security check again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and, she also, and, com- she also completely ignores it too, which yeah. like hoping it'll go away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause it's kind of like, you know, what are you supposed to do as an old lady? Right. Especially if yeah. you have these kinds of fears. And I mean, even early on, right. Like now years after the woman had told her, Mr. Smith is no more. The letters were still being signed by John Smith. Come into our office at 21st and M Streets, Northwest, the letter said in that foreign language. Come in so we could see you if you are still blind in one eye. Come in so we could see if you're still old and getting older. Come in so we can see if you still deserve to get supplemental security income payments, right? So just this kind of like, you know, overarching idea that this is all going to be means tested right they're they, they want they want to see whether you're still blind right which is just kind of ridiculous but uh in this kind of situation right everyone is uh, uh pinching pennies as it were um commit to see if you're still old and getting older um so she she just has this kind of like fear throughout the entire uh, uh text right but you definitely get the sense that 
she is someone that would at least try to stand up for herself, right? Uh, we mentioned uh, earlier on um, uh, how there's this kind of like interplay between the young lion story and this, right? Where perhaps it's uh, Caesar that tries to just like steal the pocketbook, right? And mm -hmm. th th and this is just kind of this is like a very like wonderful little interaction. Um, one of the last things she put in her pocketbook was a seven inch or so knife that she had, with the use of a small saw borrowed from a neighbor, serrated on both edges. The knife she was convinced now had saved her life about two weeks before. Before then, she had often been careless about when she took the knife out with her, and she had never taken it out in daylight. But now she never left her apartment without it, even when going down the hall to the trash drop. She had gone out to buy a simple box of oatmeal, no more, no less. It was about seven in the evening, the streets with enough commuters driving up 13th Street to make her feel safe. Several yards before she reached the store, the young man came from behind her and tried to rip off her coat pocket where he thought she kept her money, for she carried no purse or pocketbook after five o'clock. The money was in the other pocket with the knife, and this hand caught in the empty pocket long enough for her to reach around the knife and cut his hand as it came out of her pocket. He screamed and called her an old bitch. He took a few steps up 13th Street and stood in front of Emerson's Market, examining the hand and shaking off blood. Except for the cars passing uh, up and down 13th Street, they were alone, and she began to pray. You cut me, he said as if he had only been minding his own business when she cut him. Yeah. Just look what you did to my hand, he said, and looked around as if for some witness to her crime. There was not a great amount of blood, but there was enough for her to see it dripping to the pavement. He seemed to be about 20, no more than 25, dressed the way they were all dressed nowadays, as if a blind man had matched up all their colors. It occurred to her to say that she had seven grandchildren his age, that by telling him this, he would leave her alone. But the more filth he spoke, the more she wanted him only to come toward her again. You done crippled me, you old bitch. I sure did, she said, without malice, without triumph, but simply the way she would have told him the time of day had he asked and had she known. She gripped the knife tighter, and as she did, she turned her body ever so slightly so that her good eye lined up with him. Her heart was making an awful racket, wanting to be away from him, wanting to be safe at home. I will not be moved, some organ in the neighborhood of the heart had told her the heart. And I got plenty more where that came from. Right. So, um, I, I mean, it's like it's an interesting kind of twist, right? And a kind of, you know, in a more dramatic fashion, uh, sort of suggests what would happen later on in the uh, social security office right like it's like yeah. this like thing where like on the one hand yes she's an old lady she's not totally aware of how the world works she has lots of fears are both correct as well as perhaps a bit misplaced um but she's also kind of like you know she's also world 
weary and world weary and also definitely has some understanding i mean she's walking around and she's she has to follow certain cues like okay there's enough commuters here that i feel safe i have to carry this knife i don't carry a pocketbook past 5 p.m right there's definitely you know a lot of that right um mm -hmm. and ultimately you know she, she still continues getting the checks right yeah well it's you know tying it back to the story young lions assuming that that these two things are connected it's it's interesting the the differential effects of actions on like two different people involved in the same thing because mm -hmm. it barely merits a sentence for caesar in mm -hmm. his story whereas it seems to be like a seminal event in this late uh arc of her life for mm -hmm. her and it actually does show her to be kind you know kind of a you know, a badass or whatever, because yeah. like he's a fucking murderer. Like he could have killed yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> so good, you know, good for her, yeah. honestly. But uh, you know, something I was thinking about as we were talking about this is it's kind of interesting to compare this to uh the movie Wild Strawberries by Ingmar Bergman, mm -hmm. you know, to see sort of the comparison of uh, a reflection uh on old age. And the way that it affects one uh, varies between two complete, very, very different characters. You know, this old kind of wealthy white guy who is pretty comfortable and doesn't have a lot in this world that he really has to worry about and is mm -hmm. free in his late years to just sort of reflect on his life and what it has meant and what it could still mean and what is his legacy going to be where he's, you know, she's old, but she is not in any sense removed from precarity you know mm -hmm. she is not in any sense removed from danger she is at risk of pickpockets and violent people she is constantly at risk of having her social security checks taken away from her if somebody i mean if she got sick and couldn't go into the office and didn't have any you know any means of contacting them Mm -hmm. you know, she, she might be SOL, you know, and that's probably what she, that, that's the money that she lives on. I can't imagine that she has much of a savings. I mean, nobody has much of a savings and that goes doubly so for black individuals in this country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, it's, you know, you could say that it's a stretch of a comparison, but it's, you know, th there are plenty of stories about like old aging white guys trying to come to terms with themselves, you know, but not a lot of stories about like old black women who really don't have the space or the time to come to terms with themselves in that same way, which is why I think Ed uh, Jones introduces this character of the Howard University student mm -hmm. that comes in and is doing like a folklore project of these like older black people in this senior building where she lives, where he's having them record as much of their life as they can on the video cassettes and uh, presumably is going to compile them into something like a, like a black studs turkle or something like mm -hmm. that and gives her copies that she can listen to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, like, so like, what do you make of that, you know, uh, ending uh, in particular, right? Um, you know, cause, cause like uh, on the one hand we see, you know, like lots of like little bits of evidence, right? That uh, she's someone that maybe has had an interesting life or at least maybe a, a life of, of some kind of depth, right? She's able to defend herself. She's able to look after her own interests. She's old, but she's also seems to be, you know, pretty aware of her surroundings, even if we could say that she technically doesn't know how 
maybe social security offices work or like whatever. Uh, uh, she, she's very kind of like uh, aware of, of, of what, of what she needs for her own life. Um, and, you know, by the end of it, right. So she's kind of like recording, uh, in, into this recorder, like her own voice, right. Talking about uh, her life, talking about growing up, talking about just, just, you know, different things in her life. And she, on the one hand, doesn't like her, her voice. Uh, and then on the other hand, like, I, I think the reader definitely gets the sense of, you know, it makes sense to sort of end the story with these repeated kind of voiceovers essentially right this kind of um you know her own life kind of like playing out being spoken of being being put into words because uh there is some sort of substance there there is this kind of depth you know to whatever degree and we have evidence of most, that starting out yeah i mean in the same way that i think her and the young girl and the girl who raised uh pigeon's story might be the most depthful characters in the story in terms yeah. of like you could imagine that they might have an interesting perspective if they were to go on like an extended discourse about themselves yeah. and what they think about the world. I mean, the, the young girl at the start when she's older, but you know, you sense that she is on the verge of like escaping from this kind of small world that she is a part of and stepping into something larger. Mm -hmm. And, and she is at the end of it and she in reflecting back on it seems to have a lot of interesting perspective and still be pretty sharp and have her reflexes about her i mean she stabbed a, a thug in the in the hand with it she mm -hmm. carries a switch point yeah well it's, it so seems funny. like it seems like it's a serrated uh kitchen knife of some sort yeah something. So, something like that but anyway uh and yet despite the fact that she really does have an interesting perspective she ultimately after 86 years and all this shit, she's not fundamentally comfortable with herself and comfortable yeah. in her own skin. Yeah. And it's like kind of small T tragic, you know, like all of this, all, all of this interesting perspective and interesting life that she seemingly has lived. And she has, and yet she has nobody to share it with. She can't help but look with a little bit of resentment at this other old woman that is, uh, that is dating this old sickly guy and mm -hmm. uh, and yet she is moved by his death when she is there uh you know at the end for it and yet ultimately she can't really take any comfort in anything that has happened to her because she has never gotten any distance from it i mean she is essentially still in the shit you know she's as vulnerable as she ever has been in her life mm -hmm. yeah like and, reflect, and reflection Reflection does her no good, and if anything, could potentially like dull her senses. Yeah, you know, like it it takes her out of the moment and instead puts her in like a fantasy world of reflecting on her past. And you know, that's useful to some people, but it's not useful to her. Yeah, and I mean, like you know, uh, to the extent that we get like little bits and pieces of her life, uh, you know, we have these like italicized kind of, um, you know, sections right where she's talking into the recorder. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, like, you know, the, the, even as an older woman, right. That perhaps is a little bit, um, you know, uh, a little bit off in some ways, like she's, uh, you know, she does say interesting things, even in these like recordings. So like the, the way that, that, um, the final recording ends, uh, I couldn't calm myself enough to listen to when the red cap said another train would be leaving for Baltimore. I was just that upset. 
I had a bunch of addresses of people we knew all the way from home up to Boston. And I used one precious nickel to call a woman I hadn't seen in years because I didn't have the white people in Baltimore number. This woman come and got me, took me to her place. I remember like it was yesterday that we got in the streetcar marked 13th and DNE. The more a road, the more brighter things got. You ain't lived till you've been on the streetcar. The further we went on that streetcar, dead down in the middle of the street, the more I know that I could never go live in Baltimore. I know that I could never live in a place that didn't have that streetcar and then clack, clackety clack tracks. And then uh, ultimately the story ends. She wrapped the tapes in two plastic bags and put them in the dresser drawer that contained all that was valuable to her. Birth and death certificates, silver dollars, life insurance policies, pictures of her husbands and the children they had given each other and the grandchildren those children had given her and the great grands whose names she had trouble remembering. She set the tapes in the back corner of the drawer away from the things she needed to get her hands on regularly. She knew that however long she lived, she would not ever again listen to them. For in the end, despite all that was on the tapes, she could not stand the sound of her own voice. And I mean, it's kind of implied, right? Like for in the end, despite all that was on the tapes, it, it's sort of implying that there is something of value there. There is something worthwhile, that there is something that, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of your voice because you have some kind of input into the world that matters, right? Uh, but still, for whatever reason, we don't know why. Uh, we don't know, um, uh, you know, we don't know why this is happening, but, she, you know, she just can't uh, deal with some aspect of herself, perhaps. Mm, yeah, it's it's very 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 sad ending you know and yeah. and it, it's a book full of sad endings so it's not to be unexpected but it is kind of the right one to end on because yeah. you know there's no it, 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 it would be false if the if the book ended on too much hope because in some sense it's you know lost in the city i mean this is someone who has been fundamentally and irrevocably lost in the city you know, she has lived there since she was like 20 years old or so. And yet at the end of her life, she has nothing that she truly feels proud of about for having spent all of her time there, you know, mm. and that's unfortunate and sad. And all you can really do is just, I guess, hope that you live in a time that does a little better by people like that, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, it's almost 1 a.m. here. Not that you guys would know, but uh, we were actually uh, uh, just talking since uh, 7 p.m. for like a couple of hours, just straight up bullshitting before we uh -huh. even, you know, started uh, uh, doing um, the artifact piece of all this. Um, I wanted to wake up at at uh, 5.30 in the morning tomorrow, but uh, I'm also someone that absolutely is adamant about getting a normal amount of sleep, so I'm not going to do that um but uh okay so anybody that's watching this on youtube uh please hit like please subscribe if you haven't done so um if you guys don't know this is now available on spotify uh google podcast up apple podcast stitcher iheart radio plus a bunch of other things uh pretty much whatever you got i got you covered um so you could search for these episodes uh, hopefully this is going to be um uh, up by the time you search um 
I don't know. You got anything else to say, Keith? Good night. All right. Uh, good night, guys. Uh, thank you for watching this entire thing. But you know what? You know what? Like, honestly, like, show show me another fucking show like this. Just like straight up hardcore, four hours, story by story, giving everything it's due. Um, and like, you you don't you don't have a discussion of this book like anywhere. Like, you just can't find it. Not even Jones yeah, relatively really discusses it. For how, for how good it is, honestly. And also for how famous he is, you know? That's just, mm -hmm. it's just kind of odd. But, uh, um, and honestly, well, I, I... Unfortunately, he's a, he's a black man, so people only care about his, his slavery novel. Yeah, and, and like, I think it's sort of telling that in the kind of culture that we inhabit, uh, the only reference that I have recently seen to this book was... There was some tweet from like years ago, which I recognize as part, part from this book, where they were taking that quote from uh, the store, where uh, the narrator is basically like, you know, I didn't really want to break up with this girl, but uh, I did, and I guess I wouldn't feel bad because uh, you know, in, in this kind of ideal situation where uh, every man would be able to freely break up with any woman. As long as he knows that after breaking up, she was kind of like whisked away into like a castle somewhere protected by eunuchs and by old women that, you know, have only bad things to say about sex, right? Never to have sex with another man again. And that was like the quote that they isolated from the entire fucking book of short stories just to like talk shit about men. Right. And, and men's like sexual insecurities, right? This is, this is the, this is the extent of the things that they got out of this book. Um, so, well, I mean, at least they got one thing rather than zero things. I yeah. And it, and, it was, and it was still a good quote, right? Um, you know, might as well get it from him as opposed to whatever other garbage that these people want to peddle, right? But we don't peddle garbage and artifact, as you can tell. Um, so anyway, uh, thank you for, uh, watching. We'll see you again soon. Oh my God. Oh my God.